righty. So I'm trying to get uh, Mr. David Brookfield up to us so that we finally have two frogmen with us. Because I can see that Chuck has already arrived. Good afternoon. Good evening. I have. Hello, everybody. And uh, David, my fellow frogman, is uh, out there as well. A big day for uh, naval special warfare there in Ukraine. And uh, if you are traveling to Crimea this afternoon, maybe to get some surf, I will advise you there are extensive traffic delays on the Kerch Bridge. So uh, give yourself a little extra time if you're traveling from Moscow. And uh, what kind of a board would you recommend for this kind of surf today? Uh, you know what? The Black Sea isn't really known for its its surf. And if you're a Russian, I'd, I'd recommend a board with a big bullseye painted on it. <laughs> well, we saw that an SU-25 also a little earlier today had an unfortunate encounter uh, with the Black Sea. Did you see that? You know, I did. And it did not seem to be a controlled approach into water. It seemed actually that uh, it might have been a loss of flight control. It was flying parallel to the surface, and then it sort of uh, impacted at a high rate of speed, as we say in the south. And uh, there you go. I mean, that's that's either maintenance pilot error or maybe he ingested a seagull. But uh, that's one plane that won't be flying this afternoon against Ukrainian targets. Praise the Lord. We also have heard in the meantime that the pilot who seemingly managed to eject uh, seems to have perished after suffering um, injuries and having been retrieved. But then again, that is not the main topic for today, because the main topic for today is somehow connected to exactly this. So, just about, what's it? At some time shortly after 3 a.m. local time, what on earth hit this thing again, Chuck? Well, you know, it's a, it's a case of of looking at the damage and then you kind of reverse engineer uh, what is the likely means of attack. Uh, interestingly, I was able to screen out uh, a large contingent, contingent of tankies this afternoon uh, who shared their very considered and very experienced uh, opinions based on their decades of naval special warfare experience. Uh, some of them actually referring to uh, video games as, you know, the source of their information and the foundation upon which they based their own uh, battle damage assessments. Thank you all for sharing that with me. That was, uh, I take it absolutely in the spirit in which it was given. And again, many thanks. Uh, your check is in the mail. Um, looking at the battle damage assessment, and a very interesting piece of film uh, came out. The, the earliest videos showed one section uh, of the bridge deck. I think we've all seen this, and it's sort of uh, depressed uh, right at the expansion joint, which is where uh, road decks are laid on, on road bridges. They're laid in pieces, and they are literally put there, as our engineers all know, but I'm, I'm reporting for psychology majors like myself. 
the bridge sections are made separately be, so they may expand and contract in the heat. And there are points at which these come together called expansion joints. They are places that if you're going to blow a bridge up, you want to know where the expansion joints are so that they can work with you to help drop the span. The first videos we saw out uh, this morning uh, showed one of the sections. Uh, it was The video was taken from a passing train looking over at the bridge deck. Then the bridge deck. The, Chuck, we lost you for a second. Yep, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. The, uh, you said train and then we lost you for a second. Yes, the, uh, I'm sorry. There was a phone call I had to kank. Uh, looking over at the bridge and you can see the road, road deck actually sort of depressed at the expansion joint. A uh, subsequent video that came out, likely from that same video, but a longer version of it, was put up by Al Jazeera just recently. It showed another point of attack that had significantly different uh, damage. Uh, and again, this, this showed extensive damage under the, under the bridge, uh, under the bridge uh, uh, sections, indicating, of course, that the explosion came from under the bridge and up. Okay. Well, I came out with a, uh, an infographic showing a uh, artist rendition of a second generation Ukrainian unmanned surface vessel. These are the naval drones that, that they use. Uh, in the second generation of these, of these drones, the first ones looked kind of like a powered surfboard. Uh, they had some bumps on them, some sort of reinforcements, and uh, they it looked a little bit lumpy. They were certainly effective for what they, what they do. Uh, they have attacked uh, Sevastopol on a number of occasions. They've even attacked Russian vessels on the high sea in the Black Sea. No mean feat. Uh, they have extensive, extensive range, and I'm talking in the hundreds of miles. Uh, they have redundant means of communication. Uh, they can transmit the video that they see. They can transmit their own uh, location data. And, of course, they can receive commands uh, to steer appropriate courses to the target, to, to evade contact. Uh, and also to detonate their warheads in several manners. They can be, they can be turned on to detonate their warheads uh, at a point of impact, and they can be turned on to detonate their warheads uh, on command, command detonation versus impact detonation. So I'm crediting this attack to the second generation of Ukrainian uh, unmanned surface vessels. If you don't have access to that infographic, they just look slicker. Uh, they have more sort of planar sides. Uh, they are of a color and texture that lead me to believe that they're made out of carbon fiber. Uh, their naval architecture is such that they have uh, inherent stealth capabilities, uh, meaning that they're, they have their reflective sides are, are put in a, in, in a manner so that they, they don't, amplify a radar signal that would uh, that would uh, scan them. Uh, they vent their exhaust gases underwater, which uh, makes them quieter and also reduces their thermal uh, signature. And based on the texture of their of their surfaces, I believe that they're probably also coated with radar absorbing materials. 
Uh, believe it or not, there are actually paints and coatings that you can put on uh, anything you want that reduce the radar signature. Okay, it's 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 my opinion, and let's let's just re rewind a little bit. What what happened 72 hours before the Kerch Bridge strike? Well, there was a uh, Ukrainian unmanned service vessel attack against Sevastopol, so we know that. So I would have a hunch that a, a number of drones were launched by the Ukrainians perhaps 72 hours ago. One section of those drones went on to conduct an attack against the Sevastopol Naval Station. Another section of that same inserted uh, group of drones sailed south around the Crimean Peninsula and then turned north to attack the Kerch Bridge. Uh, how did they get there? Why didn't anybody see them? And again, if you have access to the infographic about the Gen 2 uh, naval drones, uh, you know, you can look along. And if, you're, if you don't have access, it, it's no worries. Imagine this thing that looks a bit like a Star Wars, uh, you know, Star Destroyer. Scaled down, of course, and longer than it is wide, almost triangular in shape. It has a number of hatches uh, on it th that look watertight. We know that the previous Gen 1 drones, they had numerous compartments, watertight compartments in them. Okay, that's what you want to do with a combat vessel. So if you get a hole in it in one place, it won't sink. You have a number of compartments. Looking at this Gen 2 boat, and especially looking at its communication arrangements, conspicuous on the back of the Gen 2 boats are two uh, aerials that, that stick up. Other communications uh, uh, ports on this, on this vessel are, are flat, uh, you know, angled up into the sky at a slight angle, very obviously used uh, for satellite communication. Uh, but with those two aerials sticking up, it, it suggests to me that this Gen 2 uh, naval drone might have the ability to actually ballast down, meaning that some of those compartments within this vessel can take in seawater so the vessel can sink. Uh, I don't think this thing operates as a submarine at all. There is another naval special warfare craft that we call an awash boat. And this is more like the narco submarines that uh, Colombian drug lords use. They are ballasted down so that the very smallest amount of the vessel actually is above the water. And we say it's a wash because it's so low that waves wash over the top of it. Now, I suspect that these, that the, uh, the at least two naval drones that attacked the Kerch Bridge, that at least some of their approach to the bridge was likely in this ballasted down condition. They may have even inserted slowly, uh, you know, not at high speed and not even at, at a cruising speed, but at the maximum uh, fuel economy, which may have been 10 or 15 knots, you know, not very fast at all. They may have also found it prudent 
to simply ballast down during the day, not move at all and just be awash. A thing like this that's only 20, 25 feet long, it's very hard to spot something like this in the sea. Uh, even if you're flying aerial patrols and you're out there looking for exactly this kind of this kind of vessel, very hard to see. So I hypothesize, and folks, you know, I don't know, but you're you're hearing from me based on the video of the of the bridge damage that I've seen, what happened 48 hours before, which was these vessels used against Sevastopol. And the blast damage, the the soot I have observed under the bridge sections that were damaged, the fact that debris was blown up onto the bridge, and also the fact that at at least one of the expansion joints, the road the road deck is blast is moved up. Maybe it's about 15 inches, but something moved this massive piece of concrete, steel and asphalt up it didn't it didn't push it down it pushed it up so for those reasons you know i i can say with a high degree of confidence that this was the likely means of attack uh you're looking at an attack at uh 0300 right on the money three o'clock in the morning that is the start of o dark 30 right? Your enemy is always at his worst from three in the morning till to about four 30. That's when, you know, that's when you want to hit. We have one attack at zero 300. This is local time. One attack at zero, uh, three, two, zero. So 20 minutes later, uh, the videos early in the morning made it look like there was one place. The bridge was attacked, not two explosions, and you wouldn't attack the same point. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, it's almost like that's the place you slam the barn door. So that's where the enemy is going to converge and start looking, right? So you'd want to pick another place on the bridge. You'd want to do that in case the first attack failed. And you'd also want to do that because... you. you Breaking the bridge in two places is better than breaking it in one place. Okay, let's say I'm nuts, as many of my uh, Russian listening guests uh, will tell you. I have to agree with some of them. Uh, why wasn't this done by a storm shadow? Well, I was just able to catch Gunny uh, at the end. And Gunny, hello, my brother, shippers. Uh, would this be a target for a storm shadow? Yeah, it, it could be. But here's the one thing you wouldn't do, and I know Gunny will back me up on this. You wouldn't send, send a storm shadow on a flight path or a trajectory that would detonate under the bridge. You, you just wouldn't do that. You could do it, but that's a waste of its potential. It's a, it's a waste of the configuration of its explosives. Uh, you know, you would want a top-down attack with that storm shadow. Even if the storm shadow uh, flew its insertion route very low on the deck, which it likely would and, and does. It's a low observable air launch cruise missile. It flies fast as hell and it gets to the target by flying 100 feet off the deck and maybe quite a bit lower. 
and you want to pull up at the end as many uh, as many air launch cruise missiles do and dive down on the target. So I wouldn't waste a storm shadow with a with a a detonation that goes off under the bridge. So in my estimation, we are very likely looking at these unmanned surface vessels. And if you go back and into the last time that the Kerch Bridge was visited by, uh, if you're a Russian, uh, a truck bomb, if you're anyone else, uh, at the very least, you have to say that bridge was attacked by a weapon that Ukraine does not possess. And if it's me, I'm telling you that was an attack. However, wherever you sit on that truck bomb, uh, magic wand, uh, Star Trek phaser or attackums, if you look at the blast damage from the, this attack, it is fundamentally different than this attack. Fundamentally different. The other thing that, that militates for this surface unmanned surface vessel attack is th these vessels were, were custom configured, in my estimation. The, the unmanned surface vessels that attacked the Sevastopol Naval Station would have a different charge configuration. Their explosive payloads, their warheads, would have been oriented to the front, to the bow. They would have a, a conical void in the explosive warhead so that when they hit a target, these are the, the Sevastopol attackers, their blast would be concentrated to the front so that if they hit a ship, they'd blow a big hole in it, right? You'd never take the time to make a sophisticated vessel like this, but all the technology, workmanship, everything it takes to insert one of these things, get it to the water, on and on, you wouldn't just pile in a big bunch of explosives so it goes off like a firecracker. You always want to concentrate the explosive. Okay, the two drones that attacked the Kerch Bridge, they had a warhead likely in the midsection of the drone. It was a, a big, let's call it a big like cylinder of, of explosives. I'm guessing at least a thousand pounds, probably 500 kilograms, which is more than a thousand pounds, about that much. But there is a V shape cut out of the top of the cylinder. And even though that sounds like, well, you're just diminishing the explosive volume, cutting a V into the explosive warhead would concentrate the explosive blast vertically up from the, the drone when it went off. I'm looking at the blast damage and also the fact that it, the bridge was not blown in half, uh, severed, ripped to pieces and collapsed is because the explosive charge was floating in the drone. It was detonated. And because this thing was floating, it, it naturally would lose some of its explosive power. And all of that adds up, Axel, to the battle damage assessment that we have, and those are confirmed by the photographs. It's interesting that sometimes it can be, if you methodically go through it, and if you understand exactly how explosives work and how the uh, setup territory is, it becomes quite clear as to how things go. And uh, therefore, no, sorry, no truck bomb. No, sorry, no deep impact missile. And uh, no, nobody went there directly, climbed up 
um, one of those pillars and uh, mined it. Didn't quite happen. But uh, that, uh, however you want to call it, um, we should probably call it a naval drone, right? Chuck? Yeah, I, I was calling them unmanned surface vessels because I am a uh, really old guy. I think the thing to call them is is naval drones. I think I'll get with the 21st century. David, you ought to get with the 21st century too, I think. No, no, you? I'm going with what you go with, Chuck. It's uh, so much simpler. We're old guys, that's why. <laughs> but they, how did they release the ballast? They must have actually, this is the interesting part. In order to get rid of that, get rid of that sufficiently quick, um, they must have been able to steer that. It's an intricate mechanism. And um, it's slightly, shall we say, slightly better planned than the Colombian drug lord mini sub, right? Yeah, I would think so. And folks, I'm I'm not a naval architect, but I I lived with one for a long time and worked for one when I was in the SEALs. Uh, this would be a matter of some of the void spaces within within the boat. Uh, this this naval drone. All you'd really need are a couple of scuba bottles, uh, just like a scuba diver would wear. And you'd have uh, a couple of these void spaces are open to the sea with a valve that you could actuate electrically. You open the valve and the water floods in, and that makes the drone sink a little bit. You, you balance these things out. You compute the buoyancy of this of this vessel. I mean, even a knucklehead like me after Naval Officer Candidate School, I could even I could do this. And so it'll sink down, and that reduces what is called the freeboard, which is Navy talk for what is above the water uh, is the freeboard. So you sink this thing down, and then you close the valve. And let's say you wanted to just heave to all day, meaning stop, that's Navy talk for stop, and it just floats in the water like, like a log, just barely with anything showing. And then when the sun goes down, the valve opens up, the scuba bottle blows into the, that flooded space, it blows all the water out, and because this isn't a very big, uh, you know, this isn't a very big vessel, a scuba bottle would be more than adequate to do this, maybe 20, 30, 40 times, 50 times, who knows? Uh, so it, it, it just isn't, it just isn't magic. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's something that is extremely doable. And these things are much smaller than a Colombian, uh, you know, a Colombian drug submarine. Uh, and e everything can be smaller. So uh, I, I think it's just very likely this. In fact, I, you know, I don't think it's more. I, I think it's a lot more than likely. And as Axel is saying, look, uh, could frogmen have climbed up the, the bridge piers and uh, put charges on here? The, the blast damage doesn't match that. But, uh, you know, yeah, that's possible. But frogmen have to be uh, infiltrated into the target area have to be inserted they've got to swim in they've got to make the climb they've got to in place the charges and then unfortunately folks you got to swim out i i won't tell you how far that is likely on a on a mission but it, it is a matter of miles right you you'd be pretty surprised that people could swim this far underwater that would surprise you but 
The reason I don't think this was done as well is you you jeopardize the insertion vessel, right? Something, some human sort of vessel had to come in and put those frogmen in and pick them up. And you just never want to do that if you can avoid it. It happens, right? I've done cross-the-beach operations. It, it happens. But it, in this case, I mean, always remember that rule of thumb. Never send a man where you can send a hand grenade. So the, the economic thing to do was send these drones in to hit the bridge. And uh, has that ever happened before? Well, they've attacked Sevastopol on a number of, number of uh, occasions. They attacked ships on the high sea, which is a moving target. So could Ukraine hit a bridge that's not going anywhere? You be the judge. And of course, Chuck, uh, Chuck one of the things is, is that if you look at the position of where this is off, uh, would anyone uh, thinking there were going to be humans there choose those sections of all the sections they can choose from uh, to put humans onto it into the bit where the the uh, um, the water, the current will be strongest, etc. They could have just been closer to the to the uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, to uh, Crimea, right? There's a whole load of areas there that they they could have put into, and would uh, be li- li- little chance of being spotted, and no chance of being washed out to sea somewhere if if someone dropped in the drink, right? Yeah, absolutely. You're you know, if if you're a combat swimmer, you are never going to outswim the current. I mean, you might be able to hold your position for a while and exhaust yourself, but you're, you, you know, it, it doesn't happen. And planning, I'm, you know, David, you know this, you plan a combat swimmer operation. The first thing I want to know is tides and currents because, uh, you know, you don't want to fight city hall. You want to come in on the incoming tide and you want to, you want to plan your operation just at that window. So you're operating at the turning of the tide and uh, it helps you out. But this this was not a, you know, this wasn't Frogman, I don't think. And I, as soon as I spotted where, uh, where, where I was shown where it was, I just thought, no, that's just not human. It, that, it's not humans that have gone to that position it, because it would make so, no sense for anyone to choose it. But this is, you know, these are, these are really amazing uh, operations. And, the, you know, it, it, this took a... Uh, reconnoitering of the target. Uh, I think you, this, the, these attacks show me that Ukraine is in possession of engineering drawings of the bridge itself. Uh, you know, you want to know what these bridge decks are made of. You want to know how thick the, the asphalt is. You want to know the type of concrete. You want to know the type of uh, what, what the metallurgy of the of the reinforcing rebar is. You want to know all these things, but then you know, and and this is you know, this is the amazing part. At least one of these these attacks targeted exactly the expansion joint. Uh, so this thing was guided in into a matter of just you know half a meter, a foot or so. In, in the right position. And again, if you, if you get a chance, folks, go to the Al Jazeera website. Uh, they've put up uh, video, uh, their video that they have of the bridge uh, damage. And look, you'll see uh, what I am calling as two very distinct uh, de- points of detonation. Unfortunately, I don't know how far they were apart, 
Uh, you know what? But I would also guess this as a, as a demolitioneer, I wouldn't want to try to damage the same uh, bridge section. And, you know, as we pointed out before, when you're talking about dance, uh, damaging transportation infrastructure and my fellow demolitioneer, David, will tell you, you don't really always want to cut things. You want to bend them because it's so much harder to fix something that's bent because then you have to take the time to remove it completely and put in a new one. If you cut it, the enemy can just drop in a new section. So you bend it. And I think this was a splendid job. So I, I thought it was brilliant, uh, Chuck. The The level of planning in it was considerable, as you say, all the other things. The only thing, the only thing I think about is I, 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 part of me thinks it was a, it was bigger the the amount of explosives we've got a there's a cube rule in blast force is the way they go and that's sort of it's between seven and ten meters high isn't it so one of the things that other the other things they would be trying to calculate is the weight of that span because of course they need to work out whether the the blast they've got would be enough to shift that component i mean anything's going to shift it make it vibrate a little bit bounce up and down but can't help but think maybe they they chucked a little bit more than 500 kilos in that's the i think it's brilliant yeah i you know and and i agree with you i uh, when in doubt overload right as a general rule in demolition i you know and i put a thousand pounds in there but you know the payload could certainly be more than that and and right uh, you know on on calm reflection I would like a lot more explosives to go off under the bridge, especially because, you know, you can't, you know, as we talked about, the the charges detonating on the surface of the water. And, of course, water is not compressible, but uh, there's a lot of place for that to go. But, David, I'm, in, I'm interested. Uh, I... I'm pretty sure we're talking a shape charge configuration. What What do you think? It, it, no, exactly. I thought giant ch giant shape charge. So as so, uh, during the day, I was going, oh, I don't know how you would do that, right? Oh, that's it. so literally. I was going, oh, that's it. That's really interesting. How would you do that? Yeah, giant shape charge. You know, uh, all this stuff we learned that we <laughs> that we thought we'd never use again, and now <laughs> I'm glad to say we're using it a lot in reporting this war. Who, who would have known we'd have to wait so long? <laughs> <laughs> who would have known anyone would have ever asked us again? Okay, the exactly. Funny, the funny part is there are people who since 1999 have constantly, like Cassandra, been shouting uh, that uh, it is not unlikely. And don't forget, we did have a significant amount of uh, Russian warfare. Uh, we had the first Chechen war, with the second Chechen war, Nobody thought anything about it. They continued to suppress other minorities. Then they went into Georgia, and still we didn't figure it out. So it uh, should come as no surprise to us, actually, that after the annexation, they would go further. If you allow me, both of you, let's go to briefly clear the hands, Gunny and then Alex, and then we'll move further because there's so much to talk about, about that piece of bridge. Gunny. Yeah, thanks, thanks. So, hey, Chuck, shit, mate. Hope you're good. Um, yeah, I mean, look, looking at it this morning, unfortunately, I missed it. I was drunk in bed, as you do. Um, so I woke up to the, the the fact that you've got that linear um, cut along the expansion joint. Um, I'm I'm just wondering, could it just have been an extremely large charge? 
let's say about one thousand pounds. Um, the, the the reason that I say that is, given it's probably a heavy electronic countermeasures um, area. If you could get that kind of charge there, um, and then you blew it kind of centrally. I, I wonder if the P wave, the pressure wave, wouldn't be sufficient just to physically lift that segment up momentarily and then dump it back down. And then you would have all the shearing forces. And then that that's how you get that sort of structural failure. It, it would be nice to see the, the other peer, the supporting peer, to see what that states in. But I've seen some photos um, that show blast and, and smoke um fire damage around the sort of periphery of it and the fact that that car seems to have hit something full-on and the airbags deployed says to me they were really unlucky and they caught that chunk of bridge lifting up and he was doing 30 miles an hour whatever uh, and as it came up he just ran smack plumb into it before it kind of dropped back down I've had a look at the the, the the maritime traffic picture as well, and the, the roadsteads north and south are still jam-packed, the anchorages. So I suspect that's your cover to run the boats in. I would run them in sort of through dodging around the ships to try and avoid any picket. But I, I also can't remember. I've seen some footage of, of the Kirch Strait, and they don't seem to have any pickets out except kind of really close to the bridge. And outside, sort of in in between the anchorage and the bridge itself, as opposed to having a picket boat, at least one or two picket boats, running outside the anchorage, because that's what I do. I'd I'd, I'd run a, a a picket line in front of the anchorage, then I'd have the anchorage, and then I'd have another picket line, sort of nice and close in. Um, but it it does say to me, if we look back at that footage last year, that that wave on the CCTV coverage. Which I don't know about you, mate, but that that screamed to me a sudden deceleration of a surface vessel running at speed, the weight catching up with it, and then you you sort of get that blast. But I, I mean, if that's the case, it's got to be about a thousand pound, hasn't it, mate? Because that's what fifteen twenty. It's got to be more, Gunny. That's the point I was trying to yeah, say. It's got to be a really um, the... big. Big, well, big charge yeah. to physically lift hundreds of, of, of tons of concrete up and then kind of dump it back down. But I, I, and the thing that you that you got where you were talking about, which is a, an important point, right? So so you would get a wave like effect on that on that support. So and then it would uh, essentially bounce. So those are the components. But as as Chuck says, you want to make sure this works, right? So. 500 kilograms, you know, just over a, you know, a, a, a thousand pounds. Is that going to be enough? Of course, the water that has the compression point, so it'll be just like setting it off on top of concrete. But would it be enough? Because that's seven to ten meters above the water surface. Um, I would be going. You'd want sort of double that amount, a thousand kilograms. Because you want to make sure it works, and if if it's in the water, how much does it matter? You could get a thousand uh, a thousand kilograms in there. That's only just one. That's one um, uh, uh, cubic meter, isn't it? So uh, you could fit that into one of those boats, uh, and and there you are. Bob's your Bob's <laughs> your uncle, as it were. 
Yeah, there, you know, there's also a possibility that uh, you, you'd have a you have a, a, a shape charge, and I and I agree. I think I'm a, I was a little stingy on the one thousand pound charge. I, I, are you going to be stingy on the drinks like this, Chuck? Ah, uh, no, man. You know how many <laughs> beers I owe you. It's a lot, Gunny. You too, my my man. I'm I'm happy to pay that debt. But the uh, other uh, the other thing is, if you fill the void space. And this is a metallurgical problem, but you can fill the void space with certain alloys of metal. And what happens then when the shape charge goes off? It forms uh, an explosively formed projectile. The explosive essentially turns that into molten metal. And instead of a blast wave going up, which in itself is quite destructive, you get a blast wave and this molten slug of metal. And... There are points of the bridge we've seen damaged with soot, et cetera, and there's a great tearing at other places. Uh, you know, you can see places where the, the bridge deck is just kind of, you know, sideways. That's cool. But there's other places where the metal is actually ripped. And, you know, it's interesting. We talk about detonating this, this explosive on the water. Uh, there's a detonation uh, breaching technique we used in the seals where you take a water bag, you put an explosive against a wall, we put a water bag next to it and set it off. And we could breach our way in through walls, uh, buildings, even airplanes. We had blast calculation uh, tables for everything, every type of airplane, all sorts of uh blast calculations to building standards all over the world. And, you know, if you're going to invest all this time in this uh, Gunny and David, I'm sure you don't just want a frogman brain doing this. I want some physicists and, uh, you know, I want some people to tell me exactly what the warhead is necessary uh, to damage this bridge. And, of course, there's one thing about the shape charge because there's the thing, that, that little gap that you, the V shape in it, which produces the Monroe effect, which produces more damage, more blast waves. So, so there's uh, either way you would probably shape it anyway. Sorry, for anyone who's listening, uh, in a shape charge, there's a gap. Or there might be a, a V-shape for you. There is a thing called the Monroe effect, which just um, increases um, the blast wave. Uh, the, it, Google it. Uh, it. There's a little explanation on Wiki. And then you'll be as demolition savvy as David and I are, who are searching our, our rapidly deteriorating brains and trying to remember all the stuff that uh, very good demolitioneers tried to beat into our heads all those years ago. Well, David and I discussed this a little earlier. He believes that he still has sufficient muscle memory to blow things up. Only just. <laughs> me, me too. Only just, but uh, it sure was fun, David, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it was. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it very much is. All right. Before we go on to our historic arc, we have a couple of hands up. I can see uh, Daryl, Nodder, Alex, and Gunny. Should we clear these off and then uh, move on forward? Certainement. Okay. Daryl, shoot. Hey, good afternoon. Hey, Chuck, Gunny, Axel. Hey, Daryl. Um, hey, all right. I'm, I'm, my, my question, well, my statement, question, whatever, is going to speak to the how. And it's going to also involve a 
one of those unfortunate events that happened in the last month or so, and that's with the dam blowing. And with the dam blowing, it put a lot of debris in the water, which meant that there was a lot of floats and uh, that these drones could actually intermingle with. Uh, do you think that that was one of the things that why the Russians may not have seen it as the threat that it was? I, I will add a little bit to that. Uh, sorry, Chuck, I've interrupted a, a little bit, but the uh, because we had a, this a very similar discussion um, a, a couple of days ago, right? So there is that as well, and there is a current that, by the way, that goes around in that direction. But to confuse this, uh, to make it even worse for them, uh, the Krasnodar, um, so the has had floods. And the uh, river, there's a river called the, I think it's called the Kuban, which exits on the east. So in the in the other side of the bridge, as opposed to the uh, Black Sea side in the Azov side. Uh, and that goes in there. And I, without a doubt, I mean, they've had cars going that were pushed down that river. There will be a lot of flotsam. So they will have two bits. There's the stuff coming from uh, the uh, um, from uh, uh, Herson that really got it caught up in the current and moved around. And there are images of stuff that are on the coast uh, uh, near Sochi. And then there's the other stuff on the other side. So I, I, it would not. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it was interesting. Gunny was talking about the, the picket boats. And uh, you know, that, that is sort of like a, a naval patrol you put around targets if you think uh, naval special warfare might get involved in taking them out. Uh, you know, were, were I the naval commander on scene, who, by the way, folks, I'm certain he's on his way to Moscow right now with an undisclosed intermediate stop uh, by a hole dug in a forest somewhere, uh, I would have I would have had to prioritize what what's the most important target, right? There are all these merchant ships at anchor, because you know the Crimea Bridge, for all it is the the Kerch Bridge, it it isn't sufficient to supply the war effort, uh, for the occupation forces in in Crimea, and then to put those supplies north into occupied uh, Ukraine itself. So. Where they put the patrols, I would have sort of tried to put them on the seaside of the bridge. But it is so difficult to, uh, uh, you know, to stop something like this. These naval drones, they're difficult to stop. Uh, it, more difficult to stop would be uh, a combat swimmer. And uh, it, in all my years of doing this, and of course those were a long time ago, but I've never been caught by a picket boat. Uh, you know, you can hear them when you're underwater. Uh, if you go up to take a peek, uh, you invariably see them before they see you. Uh, and it's just really hard to, se to secure these things. But the great thing about this attack is now even more Russian forces are going to be di diverted from combat duties. More Russian naval forces, possibly more uh, army troops as well to literally patrol the bridge, to literally look over the railings all night long and uh, try to prevent this from happening again. So the second order effects are almost as important as the demolition job itself. All righty, I think that's uh, called it. So another. Yeah, so I just wanted um, 
So I am not a civil engineer. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer, even though I lecture in a mechanical engineering department for an afternoon a week. But if you look at the uh, uh, the bridge supports that were previously damaged, there are um, largely vertically growing cracks with some lateral propagation between where clearly different layers of concrete have been gone. Uh, and they then repaired that by essentially preloading it with uh, steel bands around the circumference. Now, if you're looking at those columns from a pure vertical buckling perspective, that should work, or at least be an interim temporary fix. However, if there was a something going bang and creating a big pressure wave, hitting it from the side, you would then put in, be putting those two columns against each other, what's called a MO2 uh, loading in fraction mechanics terminology, at which point those um, steel spreader bands are going to do 10% of sod all. Um, so it might have been the case that someone had done a bit of analysis and gone, well, what happens if we can introduce a lateral bending load and get the, the interfaces to essentially tear each other apart? It might be a case that actually a, a bigger, more primitive bang could actually have been as much, if not more, perspective to put that thing into a particularly nasty stress state for propagating a crack um, or propagating damage between that split in the columns. So as a just an observation of whether it's a shape charge or not but in terms of uh, making it a flooded vessel uh, I, I i used to be an rc nerd so there are lots of ways of creating a um, essentially partially submerging these things and we've seen the ukrainians are absolutely first class uh, adopting essentially technology from hobbyist radio control toys and turning militarizing them into something lethal so yeah it isn't it is quite straightforward you can literally google like diy rc submarine and see various ways of you know whether it's a uh, different terminologies and some of them have lots of lots of articles about different points of failure how reliable and what you can do but if you had those things you could also quite easily trim it so you get it somewhere uh sink the stern and point the thing straight up uh that would be quite trivial to do but also another thing that you could also do is uh, a lot of explosives or what are called polymer bonded explosives um those things are quite actually quite stable made in the correct environment so what you could do is also use one of these various techniques you can see for making your own diy sort of you know uh you know semi-submersible imitation submarine and then what we'd call pot in the rest of the structure um potentially to make your electronics and other things also impervious to moisture using a polymer bonded explosive and then all of a sudden, you essentially fill all the interior space, all free space, with a large amount of boom. Uh, and you can probably look at the length of these things and just do an internal area calculation, put in a volume factor assumption, be like, right, this thing can therefore carry roughly, assume it's a tube or a half a tube, semicircular tube. You can probably get an idea of how much uh, polymer bonded explosive you could fit in there, should you so choose. Um, but yeah, just say it's um, from the... As a frack, someone who specializes in essentially crack propagation, um, I actually had an argument with someone about online who was very insistent that that split, that vertical split down the middle, would significantly compromise the compressive uh, buckling rigidity of that structure. And as a first order approximation, I was just like, this is the mass, it is not. However, if you apply a flexural load to it, that is not the case. Then you have compromised. Uh, the flexural rigidity of that structure. And also, if you want to make something made of lots of brittle material, i.e. concrete, 
which is prone to crack propagation to fail, then introducing a essentially a mode so good at propagating cracks we have a name for it, which is mode two uh, crack propagation. Maybe someone got a bit clever and provided them a bit of advice saying, have a look at some fraction mechanics uh, and see if you can make this thing buckle um, or, you know, in another way. So just a few ideas I'll chuck out there. As an uh, so here's the thing. Uh, now the, uh, the, uh, it's quite well known. I mean, there's a reason why when people walk over a bridge, armies walk over them, they, they don't do it in step because guess what, those large pieces of things start taking on a frequency of their own, as you might even know uh, with the uh, the bridge that went over London, they made that mistake, right? So getting one to vibrate and the edges, the sides or where they, uh, uh, where they uh, fit onto the supports are on uh, big ceramic ball bearings, which allow some of the movement for it. But once you've got something to fall off that, push it off then you're in a, a whole world of displacement etc and it's that movement the bouncing up and down that you would get from a, an explosive blast that's going to cause huge amounts of problems and there's not something that bridges are designed for yeah so i don't want to get too nerdy into that but that's essentially what we would be calling a change of boundary conditions uh from if you're modeling this and from a modeling perspective first order very simple approximation if that damage and that split had left led to the essentially the rigidity of the low the the top support for that section of the beam going from what's called a fixed i.e it's clamped in to what's called simply supported i.e there's a bit of flex because you're not entirely loading one thick column you're loading two smaller ones which can vibrate very simple approximation. You can lose 75% of the buckling resistance of that section just through that one change. And the safety factors in bridges are significant, but if you lost a significant proportion of your you know, reserve factor of your structure and then someone went bang next to it, uh, then maybe that's maybe there were some engineers or stress analysis helping the people out designing what that whatever that thing should be. Uh, should deliver in terms of a pressure. Yeah, I mean, in part, and here's the thing, right? So those longitudinal supports, they're the things that go on the vertical supports. Uh, they're not designed to flex one metre, two metres, three metres, right? Which a uh, blast like that might possibly be uh, do. These are big, big spans. They're not designed to flex uh, that amount. There's all sorts of things that will come into that when you when that happens. You are exactly the kind of guy that anybody would want to, you know, consult before this operation, right? At at the point of assembling this uh, this warhead, that's exactly uh, that's what I meant. You don't need frogman brains for this. You need uh, engineering brains, and uh, it, you know, you, it's fascinating stuff, folks. It's I was a practitioner, but I I never mastered the physics, you know. Look, I got a psychology degree. How could I? And it's just great to hear, uh, hear you guys waxing rip, rhapsodic about it. And uh, that's exactly what was done. Oh, thank you very much, Chuck. <laughs> and thank you. And thank you, Another. It's uh, Look, it's all good stuff, isn't it? There's, there's the thing, right? Because with anything, if you apply enough force in the right place, you can break pretty much anything. Or in fact, not pretty much. You can break anything with enough force, right? With the uh, unless unless you're hitting the uh, movable objects, right? Well, this is a this is a bridge that's also, uh, folks. This this 
this is going to get hit again and again and again and again. And one of the things to watch for is when this bridge gets hit, and by that I mean severed in four or five places, and that will come at the appropriate moment and not before or not after. Because in the sort of task briefings we get, you know, we get a, the command comes on high and it'll say, uh, you know, hit the Kerch Bridge. And the first thing we, we ask for in, a, in, the, in the RFI request for information is how long do you want the bridge out for? Because that affects, of course, everything in the mission planning. And, uh, you know, then, then I'd ask a question like, uh, how long do you want it out for? And what is the capacity, you know, uh, logistical capacity of this bridge? How, how, how much do you want me to depress that? Do you want it out 20%? You want it out 50%? You want it out a hundred percent? And then you dial in the amount of force that's necessary. And of course, as we're constructing uh, the charges, and I'm talking about the simplest possible operation, not, not simple, but, you know, if you're going to put frog, frogman on the target, again, even in a case like that, we pre-configure all of our charges. We don't get to the target and try to figure it out and put this here and put this there. We we've, have these things custom fabricated. So all we have to do is put them up, you know, against an I-beam. They're already pre-cut. they pre-fit, et cetera. And in this case, I think, uh, you know, everyone's right here. Another uh, and, and David, you know, this was figured out by the brightest minds before uh, this particular naval drone ever got launched. You know, they knew where it was going, what it was going to do, where it was going to hit, and, and pretty much predicted uh, at at least 85% to 95% certainty what affects the resulting blast would have on the structure. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing an interdict, interdiction of this bridge here. Uh, what, what the Ukrainians did not want to do is completely sever the road, uh, the road in, incoming or outgoing going road at this point, right? Because it's not convenient right now to have tens of thousands of Russian tourists isolated uh, in Crimea and cut off. There are other situations in the strategic picture when the Ukrainians might exactly want to do that. They might want to strain Crimea's resources by making sure that there are 20 or 30,000 visiting Russians on hand, especially if they can't get water or they can't get food or they can't get fuel or they can't get electricity. But right now, uh, to our Russian listening guests, if you haven't left your hotel in Crimea, you might want to you might want to do it now while you still have a way to get out. Alrighty, and with that we go to Alex and then to Gunny. Alex Gafarid. That doesn't sound like any Alex Gafarid. Gunny. Um, ah. Sorry, guys. I'm uh, yeah. I'm I'm back. I was driving. Actually, still am. But uh, I I was really amazed. You know, with this. Um, Remember, it was not that long ago that we were discussing how to reach this bridge and it seemed unreachable and it was kind of sophisticated engineering projects and they made it. They made it. They have now, I, I try to remember, this is probably, we are watching history in making because, you know, 
a, an operation of such a scale with a sea drone, uh, when was the first time it happened? And I'm thinking of all other valuable targets that you can see in, uh, in Black Sea right now. And uh, like that grain deal um, um, blackmailing, I mean, who, who needs it anymore? Like Russian ships will have to uh, find a safe refuge somewhere and not show their nose uh, to the sea. Uh, I, I think this will have implications. That's probably what Putin is discussing right now in his security meeting. But yeah, it's amazing. Very, very good job. Very good job. And I do envy, you know, all those people who, like, uh, again, uh, just a few years ago, the most valuable skill in Ukraine probably was to know banana prices. You know, and suddenly they are back into a real business and uh, creating these new materials um, to save their country and uh, protect their freedom. I mean, uh, what else can be more valuable in life? Uh, great job, guys. Whoever, I don't know if Ukrainian, uh, pr probably they are. So kudos. Um, great job. All right. We'll take this as a comment more than the question, Alex. And with that, we go to Gunny, where it's ended up before. Hello. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, so the, the, the diver thing, um, when we used to do, and, and this will be one, one for Chuck especially, but um, SPOW exercises, ship protection uh, organization exercises, if we were at anchor and there was a diver threat, we would transmit on um, sonar 2016. Because um, Chuck, Chuck will com confirm, um, you do not want to be in the water when a um, large anti-submarine sonar is actively pinging. It will really ring. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so unfortunately, we weren't allowed to try it on the on the one um, exercise that I actually did where we were subjected to attack by um, the special boat service. They wouldn't let us transmit on sonar, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and as a result, they made it on board. Uh, and there were lots of people in black kit uh, running around the ship, taking people prisoner. In fact, Chuck, I, you, you'll like this story. What, the lads managed to capture a member of the SBS um, in the junior eights dining hall. Uh, and as I ran past, because it got into the ops room, as I legged it, I ran past and four stokers were on top of this SBS guy. And they were having an animated discussion about who was going to let go of him first. And all you heard was this muffled shout, it doesn't matter who lets me go, I will kill all of you when you let me go. <laughs> just stayed on top of them. So, yeah, transmitting on sonar, um, I'm really surprised the Russians didn't sew the straits, um, particularly to see with, with hydrophones. Uh, maybe they did and they were just ineffective, but that's, that's sort of one of the things I would have done first instance to protect the bridge. I think the lack of fragmentation on the roadway as well was instructive for me there's for me there's two things that are really interesting the lack of debris on the road and the fact that that car clearly ran into something and it wasn't another car at speed now i suppose you could say reference a car he saw the explosion ahead of him you know tried to brake too hard lost control bounced in you know into the railings or or something like that but looking at the at the impact and the way that the, the front end in front of the, the windscreen has gone completely, it's crushed. I still think he hit a very big chunk of concrete, which was a few feet higher than it normally would be. 
And that, to me, says that there was a sufficiently big charge underneath to lift that chunk of road up. I'm, I'm just wondering, because I, I, what, what about getting a big charge under there and then putting it on the bottom and then blowing it? Would that? I, I can't imagine that would make a lot of difference. But maybe putting it on the bottom and, and, and a one-ton charge and then creating that sort of waterborne blast wave to go up and shift it. I really think the entire road segment was displaced for, for fractions of a second and then dropped down and then the resulting stresses and strains just caused it to shear along that expansion joint. Um, and there are photographs of, of blast and flame damage sort of along along the sides but I, I, I don't know. I don't know how explosives really work underwater apart from sort of depth charges. Well, you know what? I, I, I think let, let's just say for, uh, for a second that the linear shape charge was used and you lined the cavity with those alloys I spoke of. You formed an ex explosively formed projectile. It would have blown into the bottom of the bridge and, uh, that linear shape charge, uh, that explosive form projectile would have ripped through the steel supporting girders under the bridge. And you can imagine just for a minute, if you cut those, you know, you cut those longitudinal girders, you, you know, cut through them 40 or 50 percent, then the explosive wave is underneath it. I could literally see it lifting the bridge section up. So you're driving down the road and the charge goes off pretty much, you know, let's say 50 meters in front of your car. You're going 35 miles an hour. You would then see that bridge section like flap up 45 degrees. That would have explained, you know, why that vehicle hit, looked, had the damage it did. And then the bridge deck would have flopped back down. So you would see it, uh, you, you know, the, when the sun came up in the morning, you'd see the bridge deck by, by, the, by its fingernails re remaining horizontal. But if you looked underneath it, its supports would have been severed. Uh, not completely, but for all intents and purposes, engineeringly irrelevant now. So that, that could have happened. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, would you put an explosively formed projectile in there or not? Uh, it, it couldn't hurt. You know, it wouldn't diminish the explosive force. Uh, and it would add that extra uh, ability to cut uh, steel at, at, the, at the point of explosive, at the, at the point of detonation. And without the explosive formed projectile, you couldn't, you, you, you wouldn't expect uh, any uh, cutting to to go on. Things would have to be malformed because of the blast wave. But if an explosively formed projectile ripped through there, uh, you could expect uh, deformation from the explosive force itself and also from actually cutting, uh, you know, the, the material of the bridge. David, would you, would you agree you want to do a little cutting there? Well, uh, the, yes, you could. I mean, the, the thing to, uh, the, the uh, look, I would always go put 
put a cutting charge in there. And the the way it would be if you put it longitudinally, right, it would just be when it's going up, it would look, you know, when you see these films with the laser beam that goes sort of up and cuts through something, it would be a little bit like that. So you would be getting, depending on how accurate you were, you could almost ensure that you hit one of those longitudinal spans. And as you said, Chuck, right when when the blast wave hits it it's going to bounce up and down even if it hasn't gone all the way even if that cutting charge hasn't gone all the way through i suspect it probably would but even if it hadn't it, it would mean that that i-beam would be effectively useless and and you know uh, more more likely to make something collapse i think it collapsed to one side anyway which probably suggests that that is what actually happened so it was the one support beam that was taken out uh, uh, or, or damaged in some way. You get a huge amount of flex and gunning. If you, you, I, I think you must have seen the pictures of the uh, – there's quite a few um, videos or old films of bridges when they've been hit by the, the flex you get in a storm and they bounce up and down. You would get something like that. And, of course, these things, because they're sitting on these – they're, they're like giant ball bearings, right? It's only got to come off that, and then suddenly uh, you've you've got a complete failure. Yeah, like I say, I mean, the, the, the lack of fragmentation on the actual road itself, there's the odd bit, but not... I, I do... You're unlikely to see fra frag on, on, on the road, though, aren't you? Because if it's flexed, it's bounced up and down, that stuff's likely to jump off, be bounced off. Yeah. As I said, you've got something. There's a huge amount of force in there. If let's say, let's just say for argument's sake, it flexes three meters, right? If you were on that that three meter flex, you're going, you're going, you're being sent up in the air a long way, right? So, so, and that would what what would be happening with any any of the the little bits that you might uh, think you might find on top of the road. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, just thinking back to the, the last attack and that wash and stuff like that, I mean, it all fits together really nicely, doesn't it? And the fact that you've got that lovely big long straight cut down the um, expansion joint. I, I don't know why they didn't boom it. I, they should have put a boom across. It's, it, it's fairly easily done because they've got those radar reflectors, haven't they, on the barges? So they seem to be moored intermittently. So you could have run... Um, like a, a a boom across that, and that would have would have stopped this happening. Manning, you've got to man it though, haven't you? Nah, not really. I mean, they're radar reflector barges, so I I would run a a flotation. I, I meant the boom though. You've got the boom there. You have to man the boom. So every time a, a you know a ship or a boat wants to go through, you have to lower it. So you have to man that component. That's the bit I was thinking. Yeah, that that's easily done. If you have a look at Gibraltar, Gibraltar's got defensive boom. So whenever a, a warship goes in, all you do is you um you disconnect the boom. Yeah, I've dived there. Yeah, yeah, and then um you move the boom out of the way. You allow transit, same as you do at Faslane Naval Base and Bangor and and sort of places like that. So it, you know it it. it would be easily doable but the, i mean the way i would do it is and bear in mind mt anderson picked up something really interesting southeast of snake island yesterday which was for fast craft heading. that's 500 kilometers though right? yeah i mean coming, it's so. it's 400 miles which is a, a even if you you dog leg it in and take it perilously close to sevastopol you are talking quite a 
a run there, and I think that equates at about sixteen knots, which I'm I'm not really buying. I don't think these UAVs can do sixteen knots continuous. The the way I would do it is I would run them in from Crimea side, shore side. I would park them up amongst um, the anchored vessels. I'd do the air raid using UAVs because human nature is if you're on a picket boat manning your little gun or on the bridge or whatever and air defense starts going off, you are going to start looking to skyward to see what's going on. And that's probably when I would run these in, one, maybe two, um, nice and slow, uh, probably along the coastline sort of thing, depending on, on what the illumination's like. But if you, you, you know, if you ballast it down, you're going to be really pushed to see it, you, even on, I mean, thinking 1006 radar, a ballasted down UAV, you'd probably be lucky to see it at one or two miles at the tops. Um, and unless anyone is really on their ball with night vision equipment, shoreside, you're not going to see it. And then I would use that air raid as cover, run it in nice and slow, um, and then run it in under the span and then blow it sort of then. Kenny, I like the way you think. That That is exactly it, folks, and that you got an old-time salt telling you how to do it. Uh, and you know what? And the boom, which, folks, is a sort of floating barrier that you can put around things. Even if you got a bunch of telephone poles, and, and I mean it, and you chain them together, and you have this long line of telephone poles floating around the bridge, it would make this operation with drones, it would make it, it would add orders of complexity to it. You know, if I saw that they, you know, satellite photos, I saw they were floating a boom around the target, I have to wonder, look, are there nets under the boom? Uh, you know, all of these things would have made this operation much more complex. And those are the simple steps that, uh, Gunny, don't you agree? This is simple defensive, you know, anti naval special warfare things that they really could have done. Um, but they didn't. And I'm not, you know, I was, I'm not half joking about the local naval commander, man. He is on his way to Moscow and they're going to give him a nice big hotel suite tonight with a great big balcony. But he's not the only one. I mean, uh, the uh, picketing hasn't worked. The um, air surveillance crew is completely utterly shambolic. Um, they have not been, I mean, I don't know what the guys have been doing. They have all these wonderful surveillance capabilities along the bridge, both focused on the bridge and its surroundings, and they had absolutely nothing, nothing uh, which they could do, whether it's ODAR 30 or not, but they had nothing. So, well, I'll play it. But it still means that the Russians would have to do significantly better, and you would have to change um, the routine and the setup there. Otherwise, that bridge is uh, suited and booted for yet another hit. Yeah. And, you know, if I were, I have limited resources to, to patrol this roadstead in the Straits, you know, I'd have, I'd have what is the most important target for the enemy to hit? And it's the bridge. I mean, why waste all the resources to hit one merchant ship in the, you know, in the roadstead, unless it, unless it was full of some extremely high value target, uh, munitions, something like that. 
but the bridge is, you know, it's the bridge, the bridge, the bridge. And, and Gunny is, is, is absolutely right. And I don't remember him being wrong very often, folks. But if you, if you send aerial drones in at a time around the point of attack, it is absolutely human nature that those guys on the picket boats, they're going to be looking up into the sky. That's going to be the threat. That's going to be the only thing they think of. It would be one guy in 10,000 on the picket boat who would say, F those drones, watch the surface, right? Watch the surface. But it, it's simply human nature. And that sort of sleight of hand, that tactical ledger domain, that sort of diversion, I mean, you need every small advantage that you can get to make a special operations thing work. The smallest diversion can pay the biggest benefits. And, you know, let's just face this again. This is, this is Ukraine showing for the second time that it can take out strategic targets. And God bless them. You know, God bless them. So if I understand the press conference from uh, the Kremlin um, correctly, or the summary which was brought out, they are suspending uh, car traffic for about two months. There may be restrictions for up to four months. And there seems to be even a break for rail transport, whether the wording in you know, how it was said doesn't really imply whether it's cargo and or passengers or just limitations for passenger trains and absolutely no rail transport. But um, I mean, that, that's a decent outcome for one hit, but it would be nice if... Um, they could do more. I mean, I had an argument earlier today and saw that maybe keeping the passenger traffic uh, or rail traffic is not bad because then the many hundred thousand of Russians who really need to leave Crimea can be made to leave quite easily and in good numbers. But still, um, cutting off the rail traffic completely, even the shallowest bit and lowest bit of cargo, would definitely make Crimea less tolerable for the Russian forces, correct? Yeah, I, I, I would think so. And, you know, so folks, remember, I mean, the Russians are using uh, the the Straits Bridge, of course, as a logistical link, but it, but it isn't sufficient. And ever since the, uh, the first interdiction of the bridge, Russia has devoted quite a lot of, uh, you know, of, of ships, boats, lighters, freighters, whatever it can uh, ferries to bring stuff in and out of Crimea. So all of those, all of those transportation assets, the bridge and the ferries and everything else, Ukraine is showing that, uh, Russia, that it can turn those off when it wants to, but, but watch the times, right? Watch what is done to the bridge, how much damage is done to the bridge, and I would also say, watch the moment, uh, and it will come in this war, that Ukraine starts attacking Russian surface vessels in the Sea of Azov. That's not going to happen imminently, but it's going to happen, Axel. Wouldn't you agree? I, I tend to believe that it will have to happen, and sooner rather than later, albeit that they must find a way to um, the shore in some shape or form, shouldn't they, in order to, say, utilize their Neptune missiles and the likes. Having said this, what do you think about Ukraine taking out that part of the bridge completely, which could then block the strait? Absolutely. They, they could do that, but that is going to call for 
you know, really precision targeting. Uh, you'd you'd want to have to drop the span into the channel. Uh, and again, that's yeah. you know, and that that is just going to take some some fancy charge calculation. Uh, is it doable? Yeah, I think so. I think you might want to reconfigure the warhead uh, of something like a storm shadow. And again, we talked about, you know, a front focused, uh, for example, the, the uh, naval drones that attacked Sevastopol a couple of days ago, they are, they are certain to have had front facing warheads. And you'd probably want to make sure that the storm shadow itself, the ones that attack this, they would have front facing uh, warheads. So, uh, you know, it would still be kind of hard, Axel, but it could be done. And that is like the master stroke. <laughs> if you can drop a bridge into the channel, uh, you know, that's 10 out of 10. And folks, if you can do it while a train is crossing, that's like the royal flush, right? That's, that's a frogman's dream right there. Well, last time they got the train, that was good. Having said this, it would be enough to hit one of the spans, right? Because if that were to collapse, it would rip into the bridge and the other span would be impaired just as well, right? I mean... Yeah, you you know, ideally you'd want to blow both both ends of it and you can think about uh, at how the Germans placed their charges when they, when they tried to blow the Remagen Bridge. There is film of that and charges went off on the, you know, on, on both banks. And their goal was to drop the span into the river. Uh, you know, as we know, that didn't go off the bridge. The bridge later fell uh, because the, of the blast damage that didn't drop it immediately. Yes, but if you, if you could sever one end of that span, it, it would fall. And that would be, you know, that would be terrific. It would impact Russia's, you know, Russia sends a lot of stuff out of the Sea of Azov into the Black Sea and to into world commerce. And if you could block the straits with what's left of this bridge, uh, you know, that's that's something that would take months and months for Russia to clear the clear this the, the channel. And uh, again, that's something Ukraine will do when it figures out the time is right. Johnny. Yeah, uh, I'm just. Post, otherwise, we'll move. No, no, I, I'm. I'm just thinking reference to sonar thing. Um, it's funny how my mind works after a couple of glasses of wine. There, there have been reports of loads of dolphins washing ashore, haven't there? In the sea of Azov, dolphins, porpoises. Yep, and and in uh, and in um, the, the the Black Sea as well. Yeah, I I do wonder if maybe they do have pickets to see what transmitting on active sonar and that that might be a result of of what we're seeing difficult to tell because we don't know the number of mammals being washed ashore but ordinarily you will see an uptick in this kind of thing especially where nato have been running a big exercise and you're running around everyone transmitting on active so um maybe that's that 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 might signify that there is some kind of active sonar activity either side of the bridge and they're, they're trying to defend against this, this type of strike, which um, clearly it doesn't work. Just reference um, closing the bridge entirely, um, just in, into fantasy land here, Chuck. Um, why blow a bridge when you can rib to uh, a merchant vessel, um, kick everyone off, and then run it into the single transit channel and then blow it in place, scuttle it, 
jump into your rib and then motor off back to shore and then disappear into the background. I think that would be a far easier way of closing the channel than trying to blow it. Um, there'd be an awful lot of effort there. Whereas if I put a 2,000 ton coaster across it um, and then um, just blow charges in a hole and disappear, that channel's blocked for months, isn't it? And then you won't be able to use it. The only thing is for that, of course, you're not going to damage the bridge. You're not going to stop rail traffic. But I don't know. It's an, another option. That's how I do it anyway, if I was special forces. And there's a reason why I never made special forces. <laughs> no, you know, but listen, I like the way you think. And it's funny you mentioned that because I won't tell you the target. But as a sailor, you could think of a lot of places that could happen. That's exactly what we did in an exercise. We took over a ship. We navigated into a very uh, constrained waterway that uh, was at a very important point of world commerce. We got it perpendicular to the channel, and then we simulated blowing the ship up. So, right, and I, our L Russian listening, listening guests, I want you to put that on your list of things that could happen. And we did that with 14 guys, and we also did it against a world power who was literally waiting for us on the ship. We had a one hour window to do it and they still couldn't stop us. So that's, that's something that now, you know, that's, those are the second order effects of these, these kind of attacks. Russia has got to divert manpower resources, everything else to protecting this bridge, the even more than they're already doing. And you know what, Gunny, about those, you guys, about those uh, dolphins, uh, I'll bring up an even uglier possibility, and that is that they are being killed by the Russians themselves because marine mammals are often used in, uh, you know, in special warfare operations. So this could be certainly it could be you know, a lot of increased use of sonar by the Russians in the Black Sea. And folks, no one else is using sonar in the Black Sea except the Russians. No one else has the equipment. No one else has the widespread presence. And uh, the Russians, fearing for their own uh, facilities, they literally may have embarked on a dolphin killing spree in the Black Sea to make sure that uh, these animals are not being used against them. Uh, it's bad all around. They don't, in actual fact, take much care of their environment either. So the, uh, it, it would it'd be a surprise that they just do it habitually all the time yeah it's not you know i've written a couple of screenplays and if you're trying to make uh, a villain you, you just you know if you were writing this about the about any villain specter whoever you know the, the russians do things that are just so over the top you know so villainous you, you couldn't sell this as a screenplay that uh, they would take a nuclear power plant hostage, that they would embark on killing marine mammals all through the Black Sea, that they would kidnap tens and tens of thousands of Ukrainian children and send them to the Russian Arctic and Siberia. You just, you know, you it, it's one atrocity, one unthinkable crime after another, after another. Uh, you know, 98% of their pre precision strike munitions hit apartment buildings. Uh, it, 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 it's crazy. It, you can't make this stuff up. But the thing is, Chuck, there's some of us who have always been saying this. 
Look, well, you know, Philip Breedlove, Philip Breedlove, when he was secure, well, publicly had to find, uh, say, strike a balance. He, at a later stage, stated very clearly, and then also at some point then publicly, after the Crimean annexation, that Russia is one of the most dangerous adversaries if let loose and if allowed to play, is allowed to go unpunished. Ben Hodges said it in very clear, precise military terms. All this has been said many times before. When uh, the Russians took Chechnya um, and leveled Grozny, when the Russians used poison gas in Syria, we knew it. People dug dead, bleak children and their corpses out of the rubble because they bombed the places and they poisoned them. We know all this. We've said it many times, and we still have deigned not to fight. This is a moral issue. This is a very righteous war, and it needs to be fought, it needs to be won, and it needs to be won a lot more quickly than we're currently allowing it to occur. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, there are times I I sort of check myself, and I, I... I check what I say about the Russians because there's a little voice in my head saying, "Look, Chuck, you're you're this unreconstructed cold warrior, right? You've you've you were raised all your life, uh, quite literally, folks. If you're a, an American of my age, you remember getting under your desk in elementary school because we'd have these drills in case our cities were nuked by the Soviets. Duck and cover, duck and cover." <laughs> And folks, I can remember being in kindergarten, getting under my desk and thinking, don't these people know we're talking about nuclear weapons? What am I doing under my desk? You know, But it, 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 the level of, uh, God, I don't even want to say it. You know, the evil is, is it's, it, it's unbelievable. And all you have to do is go back for a second and think, why is Putin fighting this war? What, what was the purpose? Well, he wants Ukraine. He wants all its industry. He wants to wipe out its people. And he wants Liebenstrom, right? This is Russia's near abroad. He should be able to do whatever he wants, right? Uh, Ukraine is is Russia. And remember, this war started out with uh, Putin's great care and consideration for the brotherly Slavic nation of Ukraine uh, to liberate them from the Nazis, now all you need to do, if, if you want to give yourself a stomach ache, watch some of Putin's talking heads on his propaganda channels. Listen to the sickening sewage that comes out of their mouths. Let's nuke Paris. Let's nuke London. We should kill every Ukrainian. Look, I'm not writing the script. This is what these people say every day. Where does that come from? You know, where, where does that visceral racial hatred of Ukraine come from? What's the matter with Ukraine just living its own life? How about giving them back their borders at 2014? But the good thing, folks, is that's not going to be an option for Russia very much longer, right? They're going to be compelled to do this, and it's going to cost them. And UK defense intelligence, not me, not wishful thinking, the considered analysis of, of the, the sum of the UK's intelligence services, they say, not me, they say, 
60% of Russia's military capability has been squandered in Ukraine. 60%. And that's got to be considered an own goal, right? They started this invasion back in February, and they frankly kicked Ukraine's ass all over the map. But it's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. And their units are teetering on the brink of mutiny. There were two VDV commanders, Russian paratrooper commanders, relieved in about 24 hours. Then the rest of the VDV, the rest of the parachute forces came out with a statement that they would revolt, they would mutiny, and they would leave their positions on the line if the general commanding the airborne forces was interfered with, made to resign, or anything happened to him. And just, you know, that didn't resonate in our media, our information space very much. Let's put this in a way that Americans can understand it. All of a sudden, spokespeople for the 82nd Airborne, the 101st Airborne, and the, and the Special Operations uh, Aviation Regiment, they all said to the president, if you make a personnel change, we're going to mutiny. Wow. Putin has got some serious serious trouble folks he has got static on all frequencies and you know just a reminder to moscow you haven't even received the first real punch of the summer offensive you're still getting felt out you're you're still you know you're still trying to figure out where it's going to hit and although uh there is information and i just posted up uh uh tactical map about it. Russia has engaged its forces around the Kremena axis. They have, they, have a, they have attacked across the P-66 to the west. And that's been going on for about 24 hours now with arguably some of the best forces Russia has deployed in Ukraine, a large proportion of the airborne forces, guards units, uh, mechanized infantry and armor. And the reports are that Ukraine has held these attacks back, multi-pronged attacks, at least seven attack vectors. Russia's coordinated attack, the big offensive, if in, in air quotes, of the, of the amassing of forces in the east, and it looks like that's failing. There's a problem for Russia. Ukraine has generally absorbed these blows and been happy to, to just put the zero line back where it was. But on one of these attack vectors, the Russians may be uh, disconcerted to discover that Ukraine is not going to let them break contact after they fail to get their primary objectives. Ukraine may, may cling to one of these retreating units and just keep punching it back. Again, we've got a brittle Russian force, Axel. They're not, they're not delivering the mail. They're not all on the same sheet of music, and there are great problems with their command and control. So uh, Putin, is, Putin is riding the tiger, and the tiger is hungrier than he's ever been in the course of this war. Well, let's see how we can get him then. Uh, Chuck, we have loads and loads of questions. What I would like to do is like to speed up the questions a little bit so we can get through a lot of topics which we've prepared for. So um, we'll go to Melus, then Hendrik, then we go to Sebastian, and then Gina, and then Meta. But if we do this, please, guys, girls, please, focus quick. 
to the point, and then we'll take it. Melo, yes, Melo. yes. Hello, uh, good evening. Um, I just retweeted a couple of um, images about the construction of the Kerch uh, Strait Bridge. It's a uh, quite unusual actually because it's built in a, a area which is a, a little bit uh, geologically unstable. And um, usually, when you build a bridge like this, you would uh, drive some piles into the in, into the mud uh, and lower a, a caisson around it and and, and uh, cast a pile cap above it. But what the Russians did instead, uh, maybe because of the lack of time and also uh, because of these uh, challenges about the ge geologic st stability of the region, they just drove the piles into the mud and they cast, put the pile caps uh, on top of the piles uh, above the waterline. So I would suggest maybe a, a possible uh, other explosion location, which is under the pile cap uh, and above the water surface, because then you could maybe displace um, the, the pile cap uh, and make the make the the, the bridge uh, uh, girders uh, drop off the bearings. So uh, I retweeted a couple of images about this, uh, which shows what it looks like underneath the water. And if you look at uh, images uh, of the bridge, also on. Uh, from the side, you can see that you, th these piles are exposed above the water. So that's a quite interesting uh, uh, feature of the bridge. That's fascinating. I just gave you a follow. Uh, absolutely. And there, you know, it, this again, I mean, uh, we, we talk of this bridge and we talk about it as a strategic uh, target, et cetera. And, and we all forget, look, this bridge itself is a product of Putin's invasion, right? It, he's the guy that put this forward. He's the guy that wanted this bridge built pronto. And uh, I'm not surprised to hear that the job wasn't really done correctly. That that That's fascinating. Thank, thank you for bringing that up. And uh, I'm a new follower. So great. Thanks for bringing that up. And in addition to what Melos just said, that a number of the pylons have shown in recent years already structural deficiencies, cracks and the likes. The Russians had to fix a few of them and were constantly at work in that regard. People have even said that the cameras which they are using to safeguard the bridge are not only in order to deal with marine traffic and potential attacks, but at the same time just in order to sh uh, make sure that they can see the cracks grow because they grow so fast. Having said this, let's go to Hendrik. Uh, yes, I had a chance to go ahead and look at the Maxstar uh, satellite photo. And in fact, the, uh, the one span that's dropped, okay, is twisted. But if you look at the other span, it looks like it has shifted two to three feet uh, out of alignment. And also when I looked at the photo, uh, it looks like there's about a six to eight inch drop in the non-twisted span at the one end. Also, if you look at the damage uh, of the twisted end, there is a piece of rectangular steel that has pins in it, okay? That steel piece came out, okay, was an alignment piece. If you look at the end of the bridge slab, there are holes in it. And that rectangular piece sat between the two uh, spans to hold the alignment. Now, when that explosion went off, the deck of the bridge went high enough to allow that piece with those long pins to actually come out. 
And as such, my theory is follows, that I think that the explosion occurred underneath and that the uh, weight concentrated on the two girders, on the one girder, uh, it literally snapped or sheared the end off the beam. And that is why it slid over to the right, okay, and is tilted down. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a mess. I, I have a feeling that the other span has got serious problems also, and it might be closed in both directions. Yeah, Hendrik, I was just going to ask you, and and thank you very much, folks. What he's talking about is he actually uh, has uh, seen satellite photographs that are that are you know post blast. So I really want to thank you for sharing that with us. And and let me let me ask you some questions here. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you heard us talking about the possibility that the charges that detonated under the bridge might have uh, might have contained uh, might have been configured so that they projected an explosively formed uh, projectile up towards towards the you know bottom of the bridge decks. Uh, it it sounds like what you're describing is that, you know that actually could have happened. You're talking about uh, correct me if I'm wrong a, a severing of the of the of the bridge supports. And I'd also like uh, like to hear you explain uh, why you think. Uh, there, there is damage in both, uh, both direction of the road span. And thank you so much for being patient and coming up. Okay. Well, basically, if you if you look at the at the uh, photos from underneath the bridge, okay, they have two main girders, okay, and the main girders, okay, there is it looks like most likely a steel, what they call a steel plan, in between the girders. And that steel plant is used to hold up the concrete when they pour the deck uh, over top of the bridge. Okay, so if you, if you assume that the two girders are held in place and you place an, an explosive, okay, on one end, okay, the far end acts like a hinge, like a door. Okay, so most of the blast is located on one end Okay, that's going to rotate up and it's going to rotate completely uh, on a hinge as a door hinge. It's going to go straight up. Now, when once it goes up, okay, the weight is going to come down. Okay, and now at this point, because of the hinge is not a real hinge, okay, the edge of the span or of the, the one end, if you look at the concrete, the concrete is literally sheared off okay, on the abutment part of it, and you can actually see the steel. So that actually hit the deck. But the fact that the hinge isn't perfect caused the, the whole bridge, basically, uh, the other side to sway also. But I, the, the, all that weight, of that massive weight, and like I said, it's not being held down. It could just rotate up like a hinge, came down on two locations, though true two bridge girders, okay, hit first. And I think the, the bridge girder closest to the water's edge, uh, if you look at the design, okay, those tips, uh, they're not as thick there. They actually come up at an angle. I think it hit out there and literally sheared that completely off. And that allows for the whole bridge, basically, the, the slide to the right-hand side. But the, the, like I said, the other span is completely out of alignment. 
And the only way for the bridge to move like that is literally to have the spans lifted up in the air. There's no way, okay, that an explosion would have caused that. It had to rotate out of, out of position. Interestingly enough, I mean, we, uh, we were hypothesizing two different points of attack just based on um, damage that we saw. Uh, also, the, you know, the first videos uh, seemed to show only one point of attack, and later the Al Jazeera videos uh, showed uh, a, a separate point of attack where the blast damage was significantly different. Uh, so having seen the satellite images, uh, do you, uh, do you think there were two points of attack? Is that, is that what it's looking like to you? Well, I don't know so much of two points of attack, but in one of the videos that I saw, okay, uh, there is a fire truck, okay, on the end, end of the span, okay, and you could see how much that span is misaligned. Okay, in other words, the, the, the stripe is, is way off, it's misaligned. And that deck, there is about a couple inch drop, four to five inch drop in that span. And uh, my thoughts being exactly what you're thinking, I would think that if they were gonna do this, they would try to hit multiple places at, the, at uh, different segments. And I also uh, like to voice a, a quick opinion. If I were to drop, the main span in the bridge, uh, I would think that I would hit it at the top of the arch, which is in compression. And the top of the arch being in compression, if you were to hit it with a, a load or a charge on the side, okay, would do substantial loading on that. And it could, could literally uh, kill the arch at the top and bring the, uh, the bridge down. Sorry, Chuck, uh, no, I, please. I interrupted you. So I was going to say, yeah, of course, that, that's exactly what you would do with uh, if you're taking down a bowstring, you take down that, you re you remove any strength within it if you do any cutting charges. And, it, and it's pretty precisely how you would uh, train to take down um, bridges pretty much anywhere, uh, be them. There might be box, uh, boxes or bowstring ones. You just take out those those supports and all strength is just lost, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you want, you know, we, everyone hears me say this uh, in naval special warfare, one is none. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised there were there were definitely two explosions, one at one at zero three hundred, one at zero three two zero. I think I, I still think and again, hypothesis, but I'm uh, I'm informed by photographs and video that I've seen of two points of damage on the bridge where the manifestly different uh, wreckage profiles, uh, you know, we, we've, we've seen uh, twisted uh, support stuff blown upwards. We've seen the bridge decks uh, just, just as uh, Henrik was saying, I mean, lifted up out of position. Uh, you know, uh, one of the problems with addressing the center span of the bridge is, of course, it's height off the water, right? So detonating an explosive charge under the bridge, that is, I, you know, I don't know the, the clearance right now, but it's certainly, a, you know, it, it's more than 100 feet. So that that's going to be a very difficult thing to do from underneath it. Uh, 
However, attacking that center span is is something that Ukraine can and I think they will eventually do. Uh, I don't think that there's any reason that Ukraine in the long term is going to want a bridge across the Kerch Strait, right? Russia is not a good neighbor. Uh, there is no reason for them to have direct road and rail access into Crimea, uh, a, portion, a province of Ukraine that they have already invaded and occupied. So, folks, at the end of this war, there is not going to be a Kerch Straits bridge. It's not going to be something that's going to be easily repaired. And I'm guessing this. I don't think the Ukrainians are going to want to share that bridge with Russia, maybe for the next 20 or 50 years. So, David, I think there's going to come a time when Ukraine is just going to have enough with the Kerch Strait Bridge. It also must go in order for the Azov's, uh, Azov Sea to become, yet again, a literal lake, which also a little adjacent uh, sea, so that uh, therefore customs uh, and uh, monitoring rights revert back to Ukraine. And therefore, they can close the Kerch Street, uh, Kerch Street anytime they like and have the right to control what comes out of Rostov or Nonya. Absolute key for, um, shall we say, keeping Russia honest in future. I don't know if we're ever going to keep them honest, but uh, right, you know, we, 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 we talked about this <laughs> at bay. Yeah. You know, and, and Axel, we, we talked about this months ago that, uh, you know, and, and I'm always happy to remind people, look, I was one of the guys that thought Russia would not invade Ukraine because I just saw catastrophe and long-term isolation and, and far-reaching economic and diplomatic consequences for Russia should it continue its aggression. I just, I, I didn't think anyone in the Kremlin could be that stupid. But what Russia has done right now, let, let's say I snapped my fingers and there was an amicable diplomatic solution right now. I mean, this afternoon to this war and everybody was, was uh, I'm not going to say happy, but they, you know, they stopped shooting at each other. Russia is going to be in the cooler in the penalty box, it's going to be an international pariah for the next 20 years. What was the gain in that? You know, the, the strategic blowback of this war, it, it is absolutely, the, the may, Axel, tell me if I'm wrong. This has got to be one of the most incredible and far-reaching geopolitical blunders that Russia has ever committed, and I mean back into imperial times, it it it's it's crazy. So it, would that not be anyone has committed, as opposed to just Russia? Yeah, maybe I should broaden my horizons a little bit. Well, uh, they committed it as a culmination of their approach to win back territory, and they um, still believe that we would be too weak too appeasement-minded, too compromising, that we would accept it. As the Chechen war, Georgia, and their constant um, active measures across the world have convinced them of our weakness. 
Well, yeah, there's a, there's other geopolitical blunders here, and they've been made by the United States. Uh, NATO shares a little bit of the of the blame, but I, I'm willing to pour that blame, that that steaming hot cup of blame coffee, right in Washington. You know, America has gone from when the Soviet Union came apart, there was this almost great rejoicing in the United States. Not not so much to, to watch a fallen adversary, but people actually thought for a brief shining moment that there wasn't going to be any more Cold War, that, that Russia was going to join the, the community of nations, and there would no longer be this, this threat, this dread uh, cast over uh, Eastern Europe and the Baltics, that, that suddenly there'd be a brighter future for Eastern Europe and, and European security. But that was incredibly naive. You know, and, and I'll admit, look, I fell for it too. I absolutely fell for it. I thought it was capable to reform, uh, the, you know, the leadership, the nomenclatura, the, the, the intellectual and political leadership of Russia. I thought it was, I thought it was possible that they would change their outlook on, on the world. But we're dealing with the guy who's driving the Russian bus. He is this un reconstructed soviet isn't he axel he's a you know what did we what did we say the other night a hometicus soviticus right homo soviticus yeah, yeah. He, he is, is one irredeemable because he does it deliberately well, well i'm irredeemable but uh he, he's worse than me he's recalcitrant yeah, but it's, it's true <laughs> but um that was earlier today yet again another video that uh it's but uh my Latin teacher would have called, or actually a legal teacher also for, uh, later called a pass por toto, a path for the whole, anecdotal evidence if you so like. Two young Russian women, one with blown up uh, lips, the other one quite aggressive from the background, making their own video, I don't know whether it was TikTok or something else, and highlighting how little they cared that the uh, Crimea, the bridge uh, across the Kerch state was attacked that Russia was great and they wouldn't care and we could do nothing. People underestimate, and Professor Ian Garner has, has often stated, actually, doctor, sorry, apologies. Dear Ian, <laughs> Dr. Ian Garner has said this many times, uh, that those who currently are recruited into the Russian army in their whole lifetime from the day when they were literally infants, have never seen or never been exposed to anyone else than Vladimir Putin in charge. They've been running this for a little bit more than one current generation. The impact and, and... on the Russian youth is so massive, and the impact on the, on the older people in Russia, where he passed through and parsed through his economic growth capacity in the noughties, then the defense of culture elements came in after, say, 2006. Then the defense, this is after the wars, don't forget. But this is, then comes the Georgia war. He has done this commensurately, planned, decisively, step by step. And we have not resisted. We even went into a reset. <clears throat> Sorry, you, my dear Yankee friends, 
you went into a reset. Well, yeah, actually, it was Hillary Clinton that did the reset, I think. Not me personally, but I'll, I'll take the blame. That's okay. Susan Rice, Samantha Powers, who was there today, yep, and a couple of people around her, they did that. It is insane, if you think about it, how many warning signs were completely and utterly disregarded. I remember uh, Mr. Mitt Romney, who was laughed out of this studio and ridiculed by the press for his statement uh, that Russia was the main adversary. It's astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing how absolutely blindfolded, how complacent, how incapable of proper, no frills, good old school, George Marshall um, kind of thinking we are capable of today. It's astonishing. It's painful to watch. I mean, we should go really introspective in the West. We have failed. Well, we had a president who looked into the cold-blooded, vacuous eyes of a killer and said, I've seen into his soul, right? I, I remember face-palming when I, when I saw that. I said, you, you know, you absolutely don't understand what you're up against. You, you, just, you just have absolutely no idea. But at the time with that Bush-Putin meeting, there were still people in the United States, and I'd say the majority of the people, and including the, the you know, the, the intellectuals and the, and the people who monitored geopolitical things and even military people who were still hoping against hope that we wouldn't go back uh, to the Cold War. And look, Axel, you and I lived through the Cold War. I think things are colder now uh, than they ever were. And things are probably getting about as hot as they were in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was pretty damn hot, folks. That's the interesting piece, because during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the mental acuity of everybody in the administration, across the board, national security advisor, DOD, um, the then chief of staff, different organization, different setup at that time, um, state, albeit, yeah, well, CIA, everybody, including the president and his brother, they were fully on. They were really switched on, and they had to be. Don't forget, they had much, much less information. They had much fewer opportunities of seeking proper uh, data updates and counsel significantly less interaction with international partners, no spy satellites, sorry, um, little but still human, SIGINT literally from ships and a couple of overflights, extremely difficult situation. So you have to revert back to what you've learned and what you're good at. And you have to have values, skills, experience, capabilities, and you have to have people you trust and people you don't trust. And then you have to sort it out in, in your administration. So that stress test went well. Let's hope that other stress tests go well as well. Right. Um, Chuck, I really, <laughs> David, David and I spoke about earlier, but we'd like to achieve. We would have to, now that we've talked through the uh, Kerch Bridge and the Kerch Strait and uh, um, key aspects thereof, we would really like to have a little look-see at the front line to dispel the notion you already did part of it, Dispel the notion that Ukraine has now been surprised by a large Russian formation, which it hasn't. 
and that the large Russian formation with its attack is so big that we should all live in fear. Why don't we sacrifice everything right now? It's not necessary. But we have to we have to highlight there's there's various offensive push and various attack vectors going on. You alluded to it already, but let's go through this from the north, from Troitsk, Kupansk, down to Svatove, Kremina, and as to why they're doing it and why they are so focused on uh, Krasna, as they would call it, Liman, because they're evidently pushing very hard to get there. Yeah, they they are. Um, actually, the map I put up uh, just while we've been on the show was actually made uh, last night. And uh, I was up kind of late, and uh, it was late enough that uh, I I was looking forward to a morning uh, report from the general staff. But uh, it, here, here's what we do know, just rolling backwards from the map. In the last 14 days, uh, it's been pretty well known and reported that uh, Russia was amassing forces in the east, and in particular that these forces were being concentrated uh, around Kremena. Uh, and of course, north, north of Kremena as well. Uh, last night, uh, Ukraine and, and other sources, it, it, it's interesting, I've, I am really blessed that I've got uh, uh, some, some people on uh, sources reporting to me, uh, extremely reliable, and they are generally about five to 12 hours ahead of what, what we learn in the information space. Uh, I don't always go with the information that they give me immediately. Uh, I, I generally wait for some triangulation and uh, maybe some mature thought. Uh, but they called this one about, uh, uh, let's see, about 12 hours ago, maybe, maybe 15 hours ago, that Russia had uh, come out of the box uh, around uh, Kremena. Uh, in particular, what we're concentrating on is the Zarebets, uh watershed, right? So there is a north-south river that parallels the P66 highway. Uh, there's also another road. So you have the P66 highway, which is in Russian hands. Uh, there is a, another highway that almost completely parallels it. It's an O-series, uh, the 131-306. And then you have the Zarebets uh, River, the watershed. It, it, like those two roadways, goes north-south. Russia has been trying to reach the Zarebets watershed for months. Uh, I don't know, eight, eight months. Uh, they have largely conducted platoon and sometimes company-sized assaults. The way those attacks normally go, uh, just pick the, if I had to pick the average, the median, the mean of the Russian tactics, a platoon or company goes forward and it will uh, have as its immediate goal, for example, the little village of uh, Makivka. And then attack after this Russian unit in its offensive capability uh, expends its ammunition, gets to the primary, its its initial objective. And invariably, Russia does not reinforce, it does not resupply, it does not support these, these probes. And Ukraine pushes them back and then destroys those Russian units 
as they try to retreat and regain their lines. And that has happened with no exaggeration hundreds of times around Cremena. Uh, and with the, with the goal uh, consistently being for Russia to sort of get to the Zarabets River and the Zarabets Reservoir. So about uh, three weeks ago, let's see, I think it's two weeks ago, uh, Russia started pushing again. Uh, the line of contact used to conform to the P-66 highway, which is to the east. Uh, Russia managed over the last two weeks, or actually it, it happened pretty quickly about two weeks ago, Russia was able to get to the O-series highway, the 131-306, which is about two or three kilometers west of the P-66. And again, uh, that was an advancement by Russia. You know, we reported it. We commented on it. There was a couple ways to look at it. One of the one of the ways was if you were a tanky, well, this shows Russian superiority and they pushed the Ukrainians back. I'll let that assessment stand. Given what I've told you about the average Russian attack profile, I would also say this. Ukraine traded dirt for time, right? They let the Russians advance past the, uh, that O-series highway, the 131-306, and uh, gave them it. And there they are. And the terrain that Russia was, air quotes, permitted to take, it's overlooked by high ground. So to our Russian listening guests, if you want to advance on a piece of flat ground that is overlooked by hills, and you want to hold on to that every morning while me and all my buddies shoot down at you all day long, right? With our guns in masked positions, meaning you can't even see the artillery that we're raining down on you. And you can't even get out of the way of the direct fire weapons we're shooting at you because we're higher than you are. Well, if that was a Russian victory, uh, so be it. Which brings us to 12 hours ago. 15 hours ago. Uh, looking at the map now, and if you don't, if you don't have the latest Cremena map up, it's 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 okay. Uh, people, people, how can you assume that could, our audience lives on these? Maps. <laughs> well, God bless them, and thank thank you for listening to them, folks. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, Russian attack vectors. This is more than they have put together uh, out of Kremena for uh, folks I don't know how long. I have never seen this many Russian attacks. Just on the basis of that, I would have expected uh, these attacks to, to have pushed Ukraine back. And again, I put this map together. The majority of this map was put together last night at about midnight or so. Latest reports from the Ukrainian general staff, and again, they, uh, they are sometimes optimistic. They sometimes don't report negative reporting uh, quite as quickly as they should. But it appears that these attacks have not gone any farther. That despite the fact that there are seven different axes of attacks, despite the fact that these attacks, where I've been able to plot them on the map, should have been mutually supporting. It appears that Russia has again failed to reach the Zarabets. So 
going from the north to the south. They push towards Novo Dian. At least right now, they haven't reached it. Next town down, Makvika, they're not there. Next town down, Nevsky, same thing, didn't make it. Next town down, Terny, the Russians didn't make it. Next town down, bottom of the reservoir, Torsky, they're not there. They've actually controlled Dubrova right now, which has gone back and forth uh, dozens of times, if not scores of times. Uh, right now, Ukraine is reporting that they have stopped uh, Russian advances uh, to the west of Dubrova, and also that perennial Russian favorite down at the bottom of the map uh, attacks towards Biliohorvika. Hundreds of attacks, folks. The Russians attack Biliohorvika almost every day, and they didn't make it. Now, why doesn't that? Why isn't this happening? You know, maybe Ukraine isn't reporting the whole facts. We'll we'll have to see. We'll put another map up certainly tomorrow morning and and maybe even tonight. But if this attack of this magnitude doesn't succeed, you know, you, you've just got to ask yourself what is wrong with the Russian forces. You know, could it be this that? They're attacking on the same axes, albeit all together. They're putting seven of these together. But they're attacking in the same places, over the same ground, using the same force postures that they have used virtually every day for the last six months. Is that the reason this has failed? Has it failed because uh, these troops are not adequately uh, provisioned, supplied, do they not have enough gas? Do they not have enough ammunition? Uh, are they inadequately led at the company level? Are they inadequately led at the at the battalion level? Is it that they that these Russian troops just don't care? That they're just mailing it in? That they're they're not pressing their attacks? What what is the reason that that this wouldn't be succeeding? And and here's something to consider. Let's look 48 hours from now where we'll have a more clear picture about what exactly Russia has gained in this situation. What's going to be the post wash? What's going to be the hot wash up? What's going to be the Russian debrief if this fails? If their big operation with seven axes of advance, if this doesn't do anything, Russia's got to take a really hard look at itself and say, why did this fail? Why did guards units, guards airborne, guards mechanized units, guards armor, why did this fail? And why did it fail in Kremena, where arguably Russia has five to one, six to one, in some places, 10 to one superiority over the Ukrainians? Why doesn't this work for the Russians? And and here's another problem, you know, and I, I, I've said this previously. I felt that Russia was holding back on its offensive operations because it didn't want to risk failure, that it didn't want another Vuladar. And Russian commanders, although they looked defeat right in the face in Vuladar, and they, they destroyed two brigades of naval infantry, they had to consider themselves lucky. And they were lucky. 
They were lucky that Ukraine did not follow up after Vuladar. The Russians are damn lucky that the Ukrainians did not just plow south. Following the burning, broken, defeated, demoralized, confused Russian Marines that had just got their clocks cleaned. Right now, if if this if this reportage that I've put up, if this stays the same, if tomorrow morning Russia has not advanced the ball, if they haven't gotten to the Zarabets reservoir. What hope do they have for offensive operations anywhere else in Ukraine? And I'll add this one last thing. If you can't prosecute an attack that you have pre-planned, that you have organized all your forces for, that you have rehearsed for, that you've briefed everyone, and you've got a go time and an execution checklist, and you've got all your ducks in a row, you launch this attack and you fail. If you can't do that, how can you possibly expect to, to fight in, in a counteroffensive? How can you possibly affect, uh, expect to get hit by the Ukrainians, to get driven back, to rally your forces and improvise a counterthrust? Because counterthrusts are always improvised. You can't plan a counterthrust. You've got to let the situation develop. Russia needs to take a really good, hard look at itself, Axel. I I never want to underestimate the enemy. I never want to call anybody a paper tiger. But if they don't pull this off in Kremena, it looks pretty bad for the rest of the war. And they need to take him on if they want to have any kind of uh, chance to even delay what they believe is a conflict, delay their war further for another two years they must take Milan. They need those railroads, they need the access, they need this as a, say, turning point, and if they can't get there into the Oskar River, they will ultimately lose the battle in the Northeast. This brings me to the question of <clears throat> who is standing in Svartova at the moment? Do I see this correctly, that these are units which we know a little bit about? And they are throwing half the troops they have gathered around Liman, sorry, half the troops they have gathered around Kremina en route to Liman towards Kupiansk. Is that smart? I, I just, well, I, I, I don't, they keep doing things. Axel, you and I, you and I both have military educations. I, I, I just keep looking at the things they do and I, I, I cannot understand it. I, I, I can't understand it, but we, we do know this, that there, you know, there is a great military genius resident in the Kremlin and he makes, he makes military decisions and he is the boss. He is the czar. He is the president for life. And if you are in the military, you carry these out and no one says to him, boss, that's counterproductive boss. We can't attack everywhere because those attacks will be weak. No one says to him, boss, it's like ROTC 101, right? The principles of warfare. One is mass, right? You don't have to win everywhere. You've got to annihilate the enemy where you attack, right? And it's better to punch one giant hole in the enemy's guts than to scratch him everywhere else. So I, I just don't know. And, and, 
and the other thing, Axel, as you know, we've pointed out, let's say the Russians actually get to Liman. Let, let's say that, let's say that, you know, suddenly uh, the angels of battle are on the side of the Russians. They will now have a salient extending toward Liman. And, and I would suggest that if there is a major Russian breakthrough somewhere in this Kremena operation, that it might be a plan on the side of the Ukrainians. I would invite the Russians to, to get to Liman, overextend their lines. I might even let them get all the way to Kramatogorsk. And then I would cut them off and I would rip them to pieces. Because if they can't get to the Zarebets Reservoir, how could you expect them to, to maintain momentum, consolidate their holdings, and move on? I mean, isn't that right to suspect that they couldn't do it? It seems that they lack the logistical capability at the moment to support whatever attack their troops are undertaking. That is, uh, that is the only consistent data which we constantly get fed that whenever the Russians are moving, at some point in time, they they literally run out of steam very quickly. It seems that their ammunition support and supplies are running out after the first few battles, and they have to stall. Uh, Kupansk, uh, in the area where Anna Malia, the um, same um, press uh, spokes of the, um, Russian, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, said that battles are massively dynamic back and forth, which is no surprise because east of uh, Kubansk, this is how the territory is set up. But at the same time, the Russians are constantly being repelled. They move, they're repelled. They move, they're repelled. They cannot, uh, they cannot take ground and hold it. And I think this, there's a good reason for it because they simply do not have the um, mobility. They do not have the capacity to take the ground with tanks. So that if I move artillery forward, their artillery is definitely too slow. And they are also, I think, quite low. This is my interpretation. I have no basis other than what we've all read and understood and discussed with our colleagues. But they seemingly are very loath to exposing the artillery further than they have to anywhere because they've lost too many pieces already. And uh, if, if you look at it, uh, the uh, reports this evening, also from Hannah Maria, is that essentially... Um, the Kremlin still have the, the task, it has set forth the task, and this is what I think Budanov said in, in March yet again, that Kremlin wants to reach all borders of Donetsk and Luhansk. But they think that they might be losing Kherson uh, uh, and Saporozhye, but they want to get Donetsk and Luhansk so that they can finally freeze the conflict. This is their task, that's why they do what they do at the moment. And yes, I agree with you. You could invite them to come closer. Although for the Ukrainians, this is the, the one thing which I've learned by now. For the Ukrainians, it's exceptionally hard to give back liberated territory because they've seen what the Russians have done there and they freed the human beings there and they don't want to see it go back. That is difficult because it is antithetical to good warfare. You may have to invite them. And by the way, in that regard, I would like to invite our friend Gunny. I apologize to crash the order, but Gunny and we have been talking in the background a little bit about this earlier. And he has a favorite thing, which we've been discussing many times over. But inviting them, drawing them in may make sense in this regard, Gunny. Why would that make sense? And who has done this in the past? Yeah, so I, I mean, the first thing is the figures. I've, I've seen 100,000 and 900 tanks, um, and yet no one seems to be able to point me to um, 
know where this came from apart from a report for a, a, a Ukrainian newspaper. So quite how he is the orbat for the Russian units um, escapes me. I'm sure he, he, he'll be more than welcome if that's the case in Ukrainian um, ground HQ because he's clearly got insights that nobody else seems to have. Look, uh, 900 tanks is the TO and E for four standard Soviet Cold War tank divisions. Um, so effectively, that's a core and then plus some. So, you you know, 900 tanks, you'd be talking um, probably half that in terms of artillery, uh, even though they're traditionally, they're teeth heavy. So the Russians always concentrate manpower in the in in the teeth arms infantry tanks and artillery as opposed to support arms logistics i star all that kind of thing it's a fantasy number so it, it's a fantasy number it, it, it's got to be 900 tanks is um a huge number of vehicles that they've suddenly wizzy witted out out of thin air to to put on the line so i'm not buying that for a start um that said, clearly they have amassed some numbers. It won't have gone unnoticed. Um, the Ukrainians habitually uh, chase a handful of um, Russian infantiers and drop a 155 on them. So if anyone's thinking that somehow four divisions worth of armour has manoeuvred its place into position and nobody saw this coming... Well, you know, I've got a lorry bomb on the Kirch Bridge to tell you that that that's just absolutely uh, insane. But yeah, it, it... we're not buying your bridge; it's damaged. Yeah, so it 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 takes us back to why have we seen the 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 much vaunted counter counter offensive? We've seen two two maybe three maybe four brigades committed and not everything else. And a lot of people have been scratching their heads, saying, "Well, what's been going on?" Um, if you're going to do an offensive, you go all in, you commit lots of brigades, you you know, don't tickle, punch them in the bollocks. And that hasn't really happened. And and we said before this news kind of broke, well, what if they're holding units back? What if they know something is, is happening? Either they're holding units back because they're poking and prodding up and down the line to see what gives where, and then they'll commit there. Or... Did they get the nod that something substantial was coming in some sector and they want to hold back units, especially the ones equipped with Western MBTs, especially Challenger, um, to absorb some kind of um, offensive by the Russians? So historical precedent, it didn't work. Uh, he wasn't allowed to do it. But 1943, the Russians had um, the Kursk um, salient. Um, a huge bulge into into German lines, uh, and the Germans wanted to snip it off um, on the north and south shoulders. Now, uh, von Manstein, who was um, arguably Germany's greatest general, was very much against this. He knew that this salient um, was being filled with troops. He knew that there were multiple defensive lines, strong points. He was very, very, very wary about doing this. And what he did is he, he went to Hitler and he said, look, we've got another option. Why don't we take a long step back and we absorb it? We absorb this Russian forthcoming offensive and then we do a, a backhand. So the backhand offensive is one where you absorb the attack, you let it run out of steam and then you do your counter counter offensive and then you punch him in the face and go for it. Um, he was overruled um, and then, you know, Kursk was a... a, a yeah. <laughs> 
tactically, it was a failure. So you, you, you can argue numbers and things like that. The Germans destroyed a hell of a lot of Russian armour, but the Russians had a lot of armour left. So might we see Leo's challenges, um, that kind of thing, in position, um, absorbing these attacks, and then a Ukrainian counteroffensive on the back of it? Yeah. I do, you know, I, I, I think it might be a possibility. I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. As Chuck says, we're going to have to wait and see how this unfolds 24, 48, 72 hours. It does look like on the face of it, the Russians are, are, are really going to go for it. But 900 tanks, oh, come on. You know, maybe half it. And these aren't going to be T-90s and T-80s. There's going to be an awful lot. T-55s, um, T-62s, maybe stuff like that. Um, there will be some ground lost if if it's as big, if it's as big as we think and the indications that are showing us, there's going to be some ground lost. As we said earlier, that's entirely right and proper. You don't die on the hill. You bleed them. You, you leapfrog back. Um, you do a, a kind of fighting withdrawal. And that's what the Ukrainians have proved that they can uh, excel at. And then we'll just have to see what, what comes on the back of it. Could this be a last Russian throw of the dice? Depends on how much is committed to it. If it looks like they've thrown every sort of reserve that they've got spare into this, um, this this could be their final go at achieving some kind of position where they can call for a ceasefire and say, right, we want to negotiate. If this falls flat on its face, I would expect to see some kind of U Ukrainian counterstroke on, on the back of it. Well, and of course, if if they have uh, collected everyone from everywhere, it would mean they would be so weak across every other single uh, axis uh, in Ukraine that uh, they would just be left wide open, right? And uh, Ukraine could just, you know, um, like you say, absorb the, the attack, just bomb the hell out of it uh, and degrade all of those troops whilst they move very, very rapidly in other directions. Yeah. Interesting, interesting to see what will happen. Yeah, and of course, cluster munitions are, are, are purpose made for this kind of thing. They're, they're, you know, these were going to be a a big part of any um, Western um, slowing down a Russian attack into uh, West Germany. You, you know, the, the, these things are purpose designed for that. So, I I think the announcement that these are in theatre might have been a bit of a, a foretelling that um, something was on the cards and now the Ukrainians have this capability. And if the Russians are using massed armour, and I mean proper massed armour, and, and they're using T-62s, T-54, 55s, that kind of thing, top armour is not great on them. Uh, there probably won't be a lot of reactive armour and they're going to be they're going to be pretty vulnerable to this kind of munition if uh, if they're operating in numbers kind of closely bunched together. And uh, do you know what my instant thought was when I heard about the numbers? You were supposed to say no. What was your instant, instant thought, David? I tell you what, David, I was listening to you earlier and I heard you say, what is my thought? And I thought, what is his thought? And I was hoping that yeah. later on you'd give me your thought. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to tell Have you. Have you thought about it now? Well, I, I, I typically try not to think it. It's, it's overrated. Thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it took that long. <laughs> yeah. So I just went target rich environment. Oh, yes. Thank you. Cluster ammunition. Well, you know, when I heard 900 tanks, which I didn't believe, but the first thing I thought was 900 javelins. 
<laughs> no, exactly right. Everything was right. There we are, right? There's, here's one way to uh, they we they could uh, destroy as many as they did in Bakhmut, but in two days. All right, right, gentlemen. It, it, yes, who, who came in? <laughs> no, no, carry on, Chuck. Finish your thought, and then we go to hands <laughs> because we have tons of hands. Please, Chuck. I, I was I was only going to say that look, Ukraine is a big country. Right. And it appears that Russia and and I agree with the assessment, I guess it was Gunny. Look, you know, they're Russia's trying to consolidate and bite off what it can in the east. Uh, I'd go ahead and let them fight in the east because, folks, the real game for me is around Zafarista. And the real game is getting to talk Mac and getting to the Sea of Azov. So the more Russia can be induced, compelled, uh, enticed to focusing uh, around Kremena, which actually has some tactical importance. But to me, folks, if you're a Russian, go to Bakhmut. That's where you want to fight. You know, pour your forces into this completely inane and uh, unproductive axis because the real fight is going to be to the West, right? It's going to be cutting that land bridge. It's going to be cutting off Kremena. And when that happens, and it is going to happen, it's going to be the beginning of the end. All right. We will go to Sebastian, who has been patiently waiting. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, calling from Paris. And I had a quick question regarding um, uh, UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace, uh, who will be stepping down. But... Um, he, he also um, um, name, uh, assessed the risk about if Putin be, be, begins to lose uh, too much ground and uh, he might actually um, go on a rampage and um, uh, attack undersea cables carrying communications and uh, critical infrastructure. And my question is, yeah, what, what is your assessment your expert assessment about the possibility of of him actually doing it, and 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 maybe it's um, maybe it's a, um, a a risk that the West Western intelligence um, does see, and maybe it's one of the reasons uh, why we we don't uh, necessarily want Ukraine to. I don't, I don't know, to, to crush Russia uh, too quickly. I don't know. So that's my question. Thank you. Oh, that's a very good point. Chuck, please. <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's the West that depends on undersea infrastructure. Russia is, of course, the, the biggest country in the world. It spans 12 time zones and its own uh Internal communications are all right uh, internal. Of course, Europe and and North America and South America, uh, Asia. We we all need transoceanic uh, infrastructure. Uh, Russia has specially designed nuclear submarines and very deep submersibles. Actually, they're not submersibles. They are. They are uh, parasite submarines. The difference between a submersible is that it can get up and down, but it can't make an oceanic journey. Uh, Russia is unique in that it has uh, nuclear-powered large and small submarines that are specifically made for oceanographic research 
<laughs> uh, sabotage of undersea infrastructure. That's bad. Uh, that would be a bad thing were Russia to start, uh, you know, committing this sort of mischief in the seven seas. But the Russian Naval Command has to realize that uh, no Russian submarine ever goes anyplace alone, right? They're followed, and I promise you, every one of them are followed by a United States submarine or a NATO submarine. So will Putin start to do that? Uh, it, it is entirely possible. He sabotaged the North Sea Pipeline, uh, which people could argue was against his own interests. But I will remind people that the Nord Stream Pipeline was sabotaged at the same time Putin was saying he was going to make Europe freeze during the winter. So uh, something to worry about, uh, possibly, but I don't, I don't see Russia, you know, they have to commit these forces. They have to, they have to uh, put, put these things out there. And uh, although NATO and the United States did not comment so much or share their information about Nord Stream, it's going to take this, this whole incident up uh, for Russia to sabotage its own gas pipeline in the Baltic was one thing, but for Russia to interfere with the, uh, with a transoceanic infrastructure that affects a wide variety of nations, that's going to be a completely different matter. And, uh, Russia does not want a naval conflict with the United States. That's not something they're going to win. Yeah, losing four or five submarines um, due to accidents would be very, very, very unhappy for them. But Sebastian, please, do you have a follow-up? No, no, thank you very much for, uh, for that, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that answer. Thank you. <laughs> I would have added one thing to Chuck because we discussed it here once before when we had our wonderful Doug and Chuck uh, uh, session on Nord Stream and we discussed the impact, the immediate impact of the explosions, and that was that within 48 hours, uh, uh, nations such as Denmark and Norway, but also the UK, went in full alarm, And but Norway and Denmark had to really ramp up to test each and every of their uh, otherwise monitored installations underwater and um, consider this to be a national emergency. And right, they are, because it is, because it indicates what Russia may well be capable of, which we all knew, and uh, people have been not listening. See, it seems like a red ribbon here. They have not been listening. What is it, Chuck? I feel like Cassandra here by now. People have not been listening. Uh, <laughs> they haven't been. <laughs> that ships, o oceanic research vessels, such as Yantar, have always had the capacity, they always have the capability to exactly do this, cut undersea cables. They are built for this. They were specifically built for this. If you, if you want to find any kind of resemblance of a, a first strike attack submarine, then it is uh, the potential financial collapse the Russians believe they could induce by means of cutting the main telecommunication cables between Europe and the United States. That they still haven't figured out that we have at least six different redundant systems and that they still haven't figured out that we have better satellite capabilities than they could ever imagine. 
that doesn't really matter. It would still have an impact and they believe that it's worthwhile. And they created these ships, they built, manufactured and designed and then manned and trained these ships and their crews in order to do exactly that. Test, prepare, and if need be, cut. It's an attack weapon. We knew of it since it was created. And if I'm not quite mistaken, I would have to look it up now, but Yanta was built, let me think, that's a long time ago. 2010 was laid down. Since 2012, um, close to Christmas, this thing is ready and launched. And since 2015, it is on the way. Does that tell you anything? 2010, laid down, launched. 2012, haha. 2015, commissioned and op in operation. This is a long-term attack plan. Gani, uh, please, go full Navy, but I have to go to the other people after. Gani? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it, kind of cables, it, it's a big thing. It's, I think we're playing catch-up with it. Um, there, there are certain choke points, certainly northwest approaches to the, the UK is one of them. There's a bit of an animated discussion in the Republic of Ireland at the minute because um, essentially they have no naval force um, and the rest of NATO is looking after these the, this particular undersea junction area. Um, implications of them cutting it, I, I think, are twofold. One, yeah, there would be quite a lot of drama uh, and dislocation um, in Europe until such time as it could be repaired. The more important, interesting question for me is um, the NATO boat that's shadowing where we would stand on ROE there, because this would be an attack against Western infrastructure, a military attack against Western infrastructure um, designed to physically damage NATO members. Um, what the rules of engagement would be on that, I don't know. If, if HMS Astute is... Um, looking at a Russian vessel and she's got a, 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 a an ROV or something and they are down and they are, you, you know, to all intents and purposes, looking at planting something on a cable of some kind, what do you do? Um, that that would be a, a tough one, I would suggest. We can't go around sticking spearfishes in every Russian ship that's behaving suspiciously because we would be killing a lot of Russian ships. But they're up to it, up and down, left and right. We've already seen cables cut to Svalbard. Um, the, the, the Danes and Norwegians in particular seem to be very, very concerned about Russian um, vessel activity in and around the North Sea oil fields. There's a limit to what you can do patrolling them. Um, I've done it as part of the Fishery Protection Squadron. Um, but if you're an OPV you're not going to see a submarine down below. So um, the, I think a measure of the threat is the amount of foreign NATO submarine activity popping into Faslane for 24 hours just to um, top up uh, and then the, the, they sail again immediately. So I think this is um, front and centre of risk. Would they do it? I, I don't know. I, I, think the, I think it's one of those actions the Russians might carry out the implications and the uh, repercussions of it would be hard for them to guess at though would we sit on our hands and take the the initial primarily economic hit um or would there be some kind of um counter strike 
maybe through NATO security services, a massive cyber strike on, on Russia, closing down critical infrastructure, that kind of thing. That, mm, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that that's Once you start getting into that sort of area where we start shutting down parts of um, Russian society, then it's kind of a bloodless war and it might be a steady sort of slide down. So hopefully cooler heads will prevail. But as Axel says, you know, they, they have looked at this for a very long time. They've identified it as a, a bit of a um, Achilles heel for us and a bloodless way to really fuck us about and tie down naval assets. All right. And whilst my poodles go nuts in the background, we will cycle through. I have Dustoff, ATV, Meta and G-Man. Dustoff. Dustoff, can you hear us? That's when people have their hand up for quite some time in the car and kindly and patiently wait. Dustoff, if you can't get to the phone at the moment, we'll keep the hand up and we'll go to your ATV, please. Hi there. Um, apologies to go back all the way to the Kirch Bridge. I just had a quick question. One of the things um, that confused me or intrigued me was the fact that, they went, that the Ukrainians went after the road as opposed to the rail. And, and just listening to your descriptions of how the explosion would work, the shape charge would work. Is it, is it correct that they, they wouldn't go after the rail because the rail uh, link is, is much higher and therefore the explosion wouldn't have the same effect? Or, or um, do you think there was another reason why they went after the road, whereas the rail seems the more, more logical strategic asset to go after? Thank you. That's a that that's a good question. Uh, I, I think it probably would have taken more uh, to damage the rail section, especially we're we're talking about, about the unique situation of detonating an explosion ex, explosion under the under the bridge. Uh, I you know I and again I'm guessing. I mean I'm a guy with a psychology degree, but I did I did some. I've I've done some demolition. Uh, the the softer target, uh, as it were, uh, was the rail was the was the road deck. It it's it's wider. Uh, it it's it's not so uh, you know there's not so much metal in it. I mean there's a road deck. There you know there are concrete elements. There are asphalt elements. Uh, you know it, it it is more sectional. Uh, than than the uh, any portion of the rail bridge, meaning the sections of bridge deck, uh, you know, they contribute a little bit to making it a more sympathetic target, and I I think that is the reason. Uh, I think also we may we may be dealing with this at this stage uh, with with almost as much messaging as we have tactical action. Right. This this every time the Kirch Bridge is is attacked, uh, you know, there there is a tactical out, output, but there's also an informational output, and uh, you know, putting the Russians on notice. Uh, and uh, this is the this this is the second uh, unique way that the bridge has been attacked. So that that is a great question, and I think that damaging the the road deck was a little easier uh, than than damaging the rail uh, i suspect uh, as you do so i'll add to that a little bit if i if i may acb so there is a a a cube rule in blast waves as it dissipates with the cube right so uh, the um 
the road bridge is seven to ten meters above the water, but the rail bridge is what thirty meters, right? So the blast you would need would just—I mean, you you'd probably have to put a a, a tanker full of explosives underneath to achieve, achieve the same effect really because, because you the thing you have to remember as well that rail bridge is is designed for to withstand much greater forces as well so uh, what what would there be any point if you were to uh, if you wanted to hit the rail section then you would probably hit it with a that's when you would be using your storm shadow and you would be doing it from above, uh, coming directly in, and that would be that would uh, do damage to the sports in there and taking out the rail bit. Axel has a, a very useful reason, a, a good reason for uh, uh, for not taking the rail part out, which I hadn't thought about, and which is quite interesting. Axel, do you want to do you want to explain it? Yeah, of course. You want to keep uh, you want to keep at least the passenger capacity. Uh, from a Ukrainian point of view, you want to keep the passenger capacity of the um, rail line open so that in case uh, of uh, Russian civilians, many hundred thousand of them trapped on Crimea, if you lock down um, the road bridge and narrow it down, throttle it, or even completely close it, you want to be able to have uh, Russian citizens flee across and take trains going back into Russia. That actually, as a instead of a coup de grace and then being stuck with them only on ferry traffic and going through the land route or a very long train journey, that is the way to go. Thank you, gentlemen. I think you solved several mysteries at once for me. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Right. Okay. So uh, other hands. Uh, the Dust off. Can you hear us now? Yep, I'm here. Well, uh, uh, let's go to you. Okay. Uh, I think Meta was in front of me, but... Um... No, no, no. You were first. You missed. You missed uh, a little bit. Uh, the uh, so we went to ATV. So let's do you. Oh, okay. You, uh, and then we'll go to Massa, Then Chima. Okay. Well, um, what I'm going to say is actually going to contradict a little bit what Axel was just theorizing. Um, I'm wondering. You know, my favorite coach is Coach Belichick because I'm living here in Massachusetts, and he's always said to play chess versus checkers and i'm hoping the ukrainians are doing the same thing and i'm i'm wondering i mean we we could have reached out and, and hit the Kirch bridge almost any time and i'm wondering why right now and i we've also been kind of thinning out the artillery in the in the south going towards Met, metropole and um i'm just wondering if this is all a, a plan to um now flood the land bridge with a bunch of the um, refugees of the of the um, Russian, um, you know, visitors, uh, so that they have a hard time moving their supplies, uh, and then you know we're we're going to maybe start the real offense here in, in the next uh, you know few days, uh, and they're going to have all kinds of civilian traffic um, tying up their supplies. They can't move supplies or troops back and forth. And I just wondered, um, you know, what what the panel's thought is of that. Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I was trying to put my finger on the uh, on the button. You know that 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 really could be. Uh, there's there's nothing to contradict uh, your thinking at all. Uh, you know, we we often talk about you know 
hitting a target, being able to A, locate it, and B, locate it at a specific time. For example, it doesn't matter if you hit a hotel uh, in occupied Melitopol. That's one thing. You can do that. But the, when you want to hit it, or in Berdyansk, you could have hit the Dunes Hotel whenever you wanted. But the Ukrainians hit it when the lieutenant general commanding was, uh, was sleeping, right? So there's a time to hit every target. Uh, I think Ukraine has shown that it can hit the the it it can hit the the Kurt Straits Bridge when it wants to. Uh, I guarantee you they're going to hit it again. And the the times of those strikes, just as you've pointed out, they're they're always going to be considered uh, to maximize the second order effects. And uh, you know there are there are still a lot of holiday makers uh, in Crimea. Um, right now, the way most of them are probably going to get home since they drove their cars is they're going to have to crowd the ferries, right? There are car ferries in, in service and I'm sure Ukraine has examined what effect that will have and, you know, uh, why they struck it now at the height of vacation season, arguably. So we'll see. And, uh, you know what, I'll forgive you for, uh, uh, for the coach Belichick stuff. I mean, I personally am a saints fan, but that that's its own reward. I, I know I can hear you smiling because uh, being a saints fan is a pretty tough gig right now. Was that one of the greatest show on turf? Oh, sorry. No. Ouch. <laughs> it used to be, it used to be a good football team, but not anymore. Okay, silly question in that regard. Um, I, agree, I agree with Belichick on one thing. It's the concept of do your job. Don't get distracted. Just simply do your job. Play your position. And this is what the Ukrainians are currently doing with their units. I just looked again through it, and I sent you a couple of notes, Chuck, as well, uh, from our friends, um, Jerome and others, as to the units involved in the north. And if you look through what um, Halina and others, and uh, also, um, uh, yeah, the whole team of the Ukrainian armed forces publishing data has been saying is that it's now the eighth attack wave which rolled against Kupansk within the past, what, 72 hours? And they've all been repelled, resisted, and Russian troops annihilated has been waging back and forth. They've taken some ground, lost it, and then, you know, they've been pushed back. But they're still far out of time. But the the uh, units, the units which are currently actually fighting there are interesting because it's the First Guard's tanks. Um, that's the one which had been reconstituted. Chuck, they've been beaten heavily, right? They were taken out, uh, out of commission, literally, and had to be reconstituted. Um, and there's the 144th motorized. We've seen them before. What is interesting is that from Svartove, supposedly, we have no further verification other than two locations on a map and a couple of telegram channels in both Ukraine and Russia, who say that the 4th Tank Division, that's a bigger unit, um, has moved uh, forward west from Svartove, which is interesting because that would indicate that they're trying to support what is the second motorized, which is in the in the southeast of uh, Kupriansk, uh, say, uh, salient. And that's interesting because they are obviously trying to go for it. But they've been hit hard. Then they have uh, the 752nd motor rifle, which comes from Valyuki, where essentially at this point in time, supposedly there's no risk from the three Russians. 
And then there is the 237th Armoured Regiment, who've been beaten back before uh, when they were participating in the attack on Kharkiv and lost half their uh, troops. So this is going to be interesting. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, that. And uh, it, Gani it, just reminded but... me that the fourth, fourth is actually the they were praised for being guards, but it's a tank division. But still, please carry on. No, I, I was I was just saying that you know the, the first guards tank army, uh, it it was essentially wiped out in the Kharkiv offensive. That is one of those units that uh, was retreating as as many as twenty and thirty kilometers a day, and. Uh, you know, it, it it's it's surprising that you know. So they've been reconstituted. That 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 in itself isn't surprising. I mean, they are, after all, the first guards tanks army, right? So you sort of got to have them. But we we we've talked a lot about how Russia is in this death loop as far as training goes, right? They 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 can't even mobilize men, let alone train them up to a pre-deployment standard and get them to the front. So just because they waved a magic wand and recreated the first guards tanks, tank army, uh, as Axel is saying, look, a unit like that couldn't even be expected to perform and it, and it isn't. Uh, so it, it isn't just the seven strikes coming out of Kremena. It, it is of course, as Axel pointed out, the, the north of Kremena, north of Svatove, and and headed towards Kupiansk. So the, it, it appears right now, and we'll have to see tomorrow, folks. I mean, we'll have to see. But R Russia doesn't do so well on the second shot. And as we've seen around Kremena for the last eight months, they're just not doing it. They're They're not even getting to their initial objectives. They're certainly not consolidating the initial objectives, and they're not pushing forward. So, I mean, th this may be a real, a, a real disaster here, Axel. Well, David has been highlighting recent days the effectiveness and uh, the comprehensive impact which our Americans have always uh, seen of uh, DPICM, and uh, one can only hope that the Ukrainians get this on the double quick. Because they have the launchers, they have the systems for it. It's just a matter of um, employing it as part of your battle plan. They have used other um, cluster ammunition in the past from Turkey and the likes, and maybe also from old stock that I wouldn't know exactly, but we were told once that they have some old Soviet stock still. One can only hope that they will have this available because in order to repel those attacks, uh, cluster ammunition would be absolutely vital, would it not, David? No, exactly. I, I, I'm working on the basis of they. Well, I say I'm working on the basis is that I'm hoping that they have this stuff already now, and this is why two weeks ago uh, that they uh, that everything was announced that it was going because there's there's nothing to stop once they've said it's going. Why did they need to wait two weeks to supply the stuff? It's it's in stocks. Just get it out there. You would just. I, I'm I'm hoping that that's what exactly what they did. They went okay, they can go now, and they're off, and they're in a C-130, and they're on their way the next day. You remember we were hoping that the Europeans were prepared to give the leopard tanks we and and the likes. And what did we find out? 
that nobody had ever thought that it would happen and therefore they did absolutely <clears throat> sodding nothing. What did the teacher say at the chalkboard? Well, don't assume so, anything. It makes an ass of us, right? Exactly. There you go. All righty. On that happy note, I think we have Meta, then G-Man, and Abdullah, then Jeff. Meta. Oh, my God. After three hours, <laughs> I talk to Chuck. It's an honor. Oh, I'm sorry <laughs> you waited so long. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very good to hear you, and, and thank you for everything. And I could talk about the evil of Russia, which we neighboring countries won't forget for decades. And I could talk about the cash bridge, and I'm happy that you also think it's naval drones and not ATACMs or uh, the killer dolphins or the killer uh, sharks. So uh, I'll just go again uh, about ATACMs. Uh, I'm uh, simultaneously as I've been waiting uh, <laughs> with my hand up or to 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 get to the speaker panel uh pentagon held uh, held uh, this press conference and uh, they were talk uh, asked about atacms and uh, it was still they are on the table and we'll let you know so it couldn't have been eight atoms, probably. And uh, they also said that uh, other countries have been sending custom um, munitions to Ukraine. So it could be Finland, it could be Turkey, because our fin Finnish part, uh, you know, government doesn't tell openly what they said. Anyway, but my question for you is because uh, there's also a tweet from the Finnish uh, retired uh, uh, intelligent, army intelligent general. Yes, who is a, a very smart guy in my opinion uh, about the front line. And uh, my question for you, Chuck, is if you sort of see this as, uh, you know, we we have talked many times here in this space that, you know, Ukraine's, Ukrainians are fighting like uh, three to one and uh, losses are still <laughs> like seven to ten. And, you know, it's it's crazy how how brave they are and so on and you know east front uh kupiansk and uh, you know it's it's very intense and i also follow some partisans <laughs> but I, I will know not give up my sources but it's it seems to be have been very intense and i i you know pray for them i really pray for them so uh but the thing is that uh, having the battle very intensive and in the north, and I remind, I don't need to remind you, but some people maybe, that like, you know, when Bakhmut was, was contested, should we stay or should we go, the 93rd Brigade, they refused to go. It's like, you know, we're not, no, we're not going to leave, you know. It, 
these guys are there, of course, r- rotated and so on, but there are some brigades who are so brave who just, you know, we won't go anywhere. <laughs> and uh, At the moment, they're all going meta. At the moment, they are on the eighth attack wave in the northeast. So yeah. it seems they've been yeah. sufficiently well paid and they have sufficiently hard breaching troops or breaking troops behind them. Exactly, exactly. That's That was my point, that these guys are so so brave and so committed soldiers. And, you know, <laughs> against these, well, what do you have left? I don't think Russia has had a decent army since Kharkiv when the 155th was sort of uh, made half and the rest of them went in Advika in, in the famous <laughs> tank <laughs> tank battle. But, you know, well, anyway, the numbers matter. 100,000 Russians against, like, uh, there's maybe 40, 50,000, I don't know. I don't know. Ukraine doesn't tell. But, you know, it's, it's still... Hard battle, but you know, all eyes in Russia are in the east. Bakhmut, they can't lose it, sort of, and they are smartly connect. They're you know surrounding it, uh, so Russia can still keep the city, and that keeps their eyes on it. I, that's my sort of. That, this is not what Pekka Toveri said, but you know, he's sort of main points was that you know having this battle in the east and ukrainians fighting so hard it's uh, it's sort of away from the south and uh, uh he's thought that if everything goes like this you know it's it's gonna it's uh possible that we see a breach in a couple of weeks you know either in uh, towards Bediansk or Melitopol or whatever, but we'll see a breach, you know, if Russia keeps fighting in the east. I wanted to ask Chuck, what do you think of this theory? And well, uh, yes, before Chuck answers, I'm going to I'm going to go into a little bit of housekeeping here, though. Right. So um, are they, are reminding everyone, uh, one of the reasons why we're here, we're here helping Ukraine in any way we can. Uh, most of us uh, the uh, have have the price of a cheese and ham sandwich. That's why I'm choosing today. Not a beer, not a coffee, a cheese and ham sandwich. If you do, uh, then uh, please uh, go to through to the uh, um, uh, org website and there is a donate uh, section there. If you do, as David, uh, the other, uh, another David says quite often, we don't want your rent. We don't want anything that's important to you. It's what you can uh, afford right and that would be wonderful and with that we can go to uh, your question and i did interrupt you what i should have done meta is wait for the answer and then go go into it but i wasn't thinking but that that's not unusual here meta so there we are <laughs> you do a lot of thinking in fact you do most of the thinking around here as far as i can tell uh a great what? Well, uh, you know, do not Axel, say Axel. Uh, stop it. I Axel, uh, Axel, Axel. Actually, I was I was bragging to someone the other day about knowing uh, Axel. So, uh, you know, I'll let that rest. But Meta, good, very good points, and I think that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. 
that I, I heretofore I think Russia has been uh, you know holding back on uh, what it chose to do offensively because uh, it 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 either felt it wasn't prepared or there was really some thought given to uh, what happens if we do something and it doesn't work what what happens then what happens to the morale of our forces? What happens to our material readiness? Uh, what happens to those sections of the front? And we're talking now about uh, Kupiansk and Kremena. What happens 48 hours from now if these Russian forces, having fought for three or four days, uh, they retreat to the zero line? Look, there's no question that they're going to be weaker there than they were when they started. So uh, I think the next, you know, the next 48 hours will tell. And, uh, you know, the, these sections of the front are so widely dispersed, even, even the Kupiansk, an effort towards Kupiansk and an effort based around Kremena, they're not mutually supporting. They're, you know... And again, this this shows shows me that the Russian colonels do not pay attention at the Naval War College at the at the at the War College. You know, why would you launch an attack north of Svatove and at Kremena at the same time when arguably you could have put everything into Kremena or you could have put everything into Kupiansk? And w- what was the goal? Right. And, and while Russia is fighting in the east, uh, this is a perfect time for Ukraine to start pressing south of Orkiv. This, this is a perfect time to do that. You know, and we also know there's, there's, of course, there's turmoil in the Russian command, you know, tur- turmoil at the highest levels of Russian command, starting with Putin. He's got trouble. Shoigu's got trouble. Uh, local military commanders, uh, you know, two and three star generals in the Russian army, they're getting fired left and right. They've got trouble. And the whole apparatus has trouble because just 36 hours ago, all of the Russian paratroopers threatened a mutiny. They said, if you fire the airborne commanding general, colonel general, we're going to leave the line. We're going to split the whole program. I don't think this was a necessarily a good time for Russia to decide to bust a, bust an offensive move, but we'll have to see. So the short answer is, yeah, I agree with you. I, <laughs> and anything is possible. And still, despite these Russian offensive, it's still Ukraine that is dictating the pace and place of battle. These two, these two efforts aside, of course, this is Russia that, that started these offensive operations in, you know, Kupiansk and Kremena. But still, for the rest of the for the rest of the line of contact, Ukraine is calling the shots. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much. All right. Very welcome. G-Man. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, evening, Chuck. Uh, Good to hear you, brother. Good to hear you. Um, listening to the discourse and fascinating, I, I'm still not sure what the um, number one uh, suspect is for the Kirch Bridge thing. But anyway, to go to Kremena, um, 
with the build-up of forces, and I know you, from your bullet points about a week ago, you were talking about an attack on Cremena from the or by the from Cremena on the Russian on the Ukrainian lines, and that the counterattack during the night had pushed it back a little. Um, I presume this is just an, um, a development from that. But if there's so many Russian probes, are the Ukrainians waiting? to draw them in and then hit their rear enchelons with high mars and kill all their um, lines of communication and then kill the troops. Is that a reasonable assumption? It, it, it is. And we, we've got self-reporting from the Russians themselves. Uh, it was Lieutenant General Popov, I believe, who got fired for uh, publicly discoursing and naming Shoigu and saying that Russia, Russian artillery was, was having a problem and that there was a great uh, imbalance in, in counter-battery uh, capability between Russia and Ukraine. And taking away the fancy language, it, may, it meant that Ukraine is much more effective at locating and destroying Russian artillery than Russia is capable of finding and destroying Ukrainian artillery. And General Popov was complaining, look, we, our counter-battery uh, capability is crap. And I've been complaining about it a long time, and it's getting my men killed. Okay, well, he gets fired. Uh, but... The facts that he reported are, of course, that resonate in the information space. Those are things, you know, when a Russian general risks his co career, goes public and says something negative about Russian capabilities, I always listen. You know, th that isn't likely to be a Russian information operation. And it is even less likely because a guy who's put 25 or 30 or 35 years in the military, he knows by shooting his mouth off, or uh, I read that, standing up for his troops, he's put everything on the line. So, so I, tend to, I tend to listen. And, you know, so why am I having this discussion about counter-battery fire? Well, we're, we're seeing the, the negative results of that everywhere, right? General Popoff was in the south. He was operating uh, north of Melitopol when he was, he was relieved. But we're seeing similar negative consequences, probably for the same reason, uh, up by Kupiansk. And we're seeing them in Kremena, that Russian forces cannot advance and they're not reaching their, their, their initial objectives. And when, when and if they ever do get there, they, they can't maintain their positions. And earlier I was saying, well, why is this? Why, why do we see this happen again and again? Well, if we listen to General Popoff, one of the things we can we can say is, you know, Russian forces will advance, and the, the standard operating procedure, of course, in time immemorial, is the artillery fires in in to prepare the battle space for the infantry to advance. Right? You open fire with your cannons and you beat the hell out of the enemy, and then under the cover of those barrages, your infantry advances forward often in what is called a rolling barrage. So 
the fire comes down in front of your infantry, and as your infantry advances, your artillery keeps firing deeper and deeper against the enemy. So there's there's you know a wall of artillery fire preceding the infantry. That's all groovy. That's good. That's you know that's when things go according to plan. But as General Popov pointed out, when these Russian guns open fire, Ukraine has got the counter battery radar so that they can plot the location of Russian artillery and smother it. So those advancing Russian forces, they don't have the benefit of an artillery barrage that's softening up the enemy. They don't have the benefit of, of you know, a dynamic application of artillery uh, to meet their changing needs on the battlefield. And that includes you reach your primary objective, initial objective, you get there, and you call for artillery support so you can hold on to your initial objective, but your own artillery has all been destroyed by Ukrainian counter-battery fire. So those, you know, that's one more reason to add to the possible plethora of reasons why it is that, uh, that Russian forces just cannot seem to get on the ball. And all of these little things, folks, everything from Russian ammunition dumps that are so large, they get blown up and, and explode for days. Uh, the fact that because Russia is combing through the ranks of its logistical troops and taking truck drivers and ammunition handlers and, and air defense people and everything else and taking them away from their support jobs and throwing them into rifle platoons where they get killed, everything just starts falling apart, right? These, these artillery gunners that are getting killed serving their pieces. Uh, Russia has lost, in the last two weeks, they've lost five of their own counter-battery radar, radar systems. And the Russian systems, are their NATO code name is Zupark. Uh, Russia doesn't have these, those things growing on trees. And that's a thing that counter-battery radar capability in the 21st century is as absolutely necessary to your artillery as ammunition. You, you have got to be able to, to find the enemy's artillery and smother it. That's a, that's a primary objective of your artillery because unless you do that uh your your guys aren't going to be covered so all of these reasons all add up and uh you know russia faces so many interlocking and intractable problems uh you know folks i'm still saying this war is is two years long i i'm i'm still saying there is blood toil and defeat and we're going to taste some of it as well. But Russia can't win this war anymore. They can't. And their problems are getting worse. All righty. Let's go to Ivan. Can I respond? What? Oh, oh please. What is yes, it? by all means. What is it with these northern Irish? He's just men? so demanding. Well, I mean. Absolutely. It's astonishing. I mean, seriously. I from Northern Ireland would take your arm off. Otherwise. What? <laughs> what? And you know what? G-man. These G men, these guys don't know that I am at three quarters Irish despite my Swiss last name. Well, I'm a Hoyle. So I'm with you, my brother. Welcome in, Mucker. No problem. There's plenty of space. Come anytime. 
Right. Um, the bit about counter-battery uh, resonates. I was re reading and I tweeted out an article from Phillips P. O'Brien, and he was talking about it last week. And he talked about it again this week in his articles on Substack and on Twitter. Um, the first time I ever heard, really heard about counter-battery was in a Tom Clancy book, The Bear and the Dragon, all about China going north and uh, into Russia. And uh, Russia joining NATO. And we all went to play. Well, unfortunately... Russia didn't become that state. Anyway, that's a near here or there. But yeah, it seems to be that the counter-battery radar combined with the really uh, long-distance sniper rifle, that is HIMARS, and the drones that are able to sort of give that extra bit of intelligence um, is proving to be very effective, and the Russians don't really seem to have an answer to it. And to me, I'm quite happy with that. Thanks. Well, I, I think that is very well said. And because you're Irish, it was also very well put. Sante. Can, can I get an amen from anybody? I can hear you. Amen. I just had an issue. <laughs> no amens. Amen, brother. Amen. Amen for what? I lost the audio Ireland. for 30 seconds. I'm coming what is it with you in Ireland? You know, I, just because you have a Swiss last name doesn't mean you're actually Irish in temperament and uh, genetics. Actually, you, you should know that. You should never fall for anyone's last name. I didn't, and I don't, and I wouldn't, and I won't. And the reason why is one of my oldest friends is a McFadzen, and G-Man knows exactly where they hail from. And there is a unique temperament, I think, if you are Swiss and Irish, which means I drink too much all weekend and I worry about it all week. <sighs> all these warriors. Uh, are they worrying warriors or are they just worried being warriors? I don't know. Oivind. <laughs> yeah, good evening. Uh, the uh, Kerch Bridge story, there is a story in, in that story that nobody writes about. And that is... When Ukraine do a hit like that, they do it three o'clock in the night when their traffic is at the absolute lowest. When the Russian, they do it opposite. When they attack uh, Kamatosk, they attack the restaurant area at 7.30 p.m. Absolutely worst time for the Ukrainian. And that we see over and over again. And nobody writes about this difference between Ukraine and Russia and how they do this war. Any comments on that? I, I would have been quicker on the comment if I hadn't pushed the wrong button. Ivan, always, always great to hear you. And that, that, that is exactly correct. Uh, I, I am also reminded of an earlier tragedy in Kramatogorsk, which was when the Russians used cluster bombs on a train station in the middle of the day, a train yeah, station that, that was full I, I of refugees. I remember that one, yes. They were filled of refugees. Exactly. Uh, they also used cluster munitions on a traffic jam that was heading out of Izium. Uh, these were non-combatants, uh, 
trying to leave the area with their families, with mattresses strapped to the roofs of their cars. Uh, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, you, Ukraine is in the unique position that it, 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 is, it is fighting an invader and it is also you know, balancing the military requirements of, of fighting an occupying nation but trying not to kill its own civilian population, which is being held hostage and captive at the same time by Russian forces. So uh, I think it's, you know, you picked it out uh, and saying it just like it is. And and, uh, what is the definition of uh, war activity and terror activity? Wow. Well, there are definitely terroristic uh, uh, acts being committed uh, by the Russians. I mean, I, I don't want to rattle off their greatest hits, but uh, they deliberately struck a theater during the Battle of Melitopol that had the word children written in 20-foot letters in the parking lot. Mariupol. They del- Mariupol. Mariupol, yeah. Yeah. They, they deliberately targeted that, and they killed a couple hundred children and civilians and old people. Uh, we talked about the road out of Izium. You know, we, we talked about the Kramatogorsk train station. You know, I, I point these up because one of the things that's entered the Western press is the abhorrence of cluster munitions. And do we really want to send them? And all of this hand-wringing. And folks, look, war is awful. War is terrible. I've been in hundreds of artillery barrages. They're terrible. But is a cluster the, bomb artillery? Is it more terrible? I don't know. Uh, Putin go out in the press and say, uh, since Ukraine are going to use cluster ammunition, they will do so. But they have done it all the time. And exactly. nobody, and we, nobody point, nobody that, point that that's out. Not true. No, that's not true, Ivan. I mean, the whole press is full with this, and uh, we've highlighted it here from the very beginning. It's just that the the media reports. If you go and listen to, I don't know, Norwegian television, I don't know how they report it. I can't judge. I've I've seen some television reporters who literally regurgitated what you just highlighted, what Putin said, <laughs> and therefore, yet again, fell prey to just reading off script, which they get from their feed-in aggregators, which is, of course, terrible. But then again, that's modern media, modern television and Western media for you, because they are absolutely bloody hacks. They are even worse than the hacks David and I would have complained about at the beginning of the 1980s. However, many others have actually differentiated that picture. So, And we're here to do exactly that, because that is what we do at Maria Report. We differentiate this. And I don't, you know, we don't fall prey to doom and gloom because you can now turn around Oyvind, and go and talk to everyone you know in Norway and tell them, hey guys, that's wrong. Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> keep, <laughs> but, keep doing it. Keep doing it, Oyvind. Don't give up. Keep, keep doing it, brother. <laughs> But, the, but when, it, when I when I talk about the war, they they, they come all yeah they say yeah but uh, I I talk and 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 try to tell them uh, how bad the Russians are etc or everything, and and then they come up small comments like yeah but 
Ukraine is uh, one of the most corrupt countries in the world, etc. And uh, I, I don't bite it, but uh, it, I don't know. I, sometimes uh, this is how Russian propaganda has seeped into. The problem about Russian propaganda, as you know, is it needs one truth and seven pieces of lies, and then it mixes them. Ukraine, under the suppression, you know this, we discussed it here many times, under the suppression by the Russian Empire and the Russian Federation since the early 1990s, under the suppression of the, uh, say, successors of the Soviet elite who then transitioned into different functions, remained a terribly, terribly organized and institutionally challenged country. That has changed over time. It has changed in waves, which is why we saw the various revolutions and why we saw... Um, a number of people sacrificing their political careers and lives for it. But, but, this is still better, I'm sorry, than Tammany Hall. And Ukraine has made significant improvements. And the fact that this lingering effect of propaganda is still there has to do with how our hardcore tabloid news I don't want to give it a too much of a political bias, but you all know who had the most Soviet-prone bias. I don't have to look at anyone. You know exactly who you are. Respectively, you know exactly, if you know what I'm talking about, you know exactly who they were in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. The Russophiliacs no. have a certain tendency. They like authoritarians. They like ah, the wonderful coziness, the hügelig socialist, yesteryear memories. They're completely happy with it. And they live in this Russophilia. Can't help them. They're useless. They don't understand shit. And they are bad countrymen of ours. Because they are literally acting like a complacent uh, courtesan of the Russians. They are nothing else than a fifth column if they're deliberately acting. But they are otherwise just complacent bed kittens of the Russians. This is what we have to deal with. That's fine, but we can deal with it. But uh, they, uh, they have eaten the uh, Soviet and then later Russian uh, rewritten of the history for, of from, from, from 1945. Oh, uh, much earlier. Much earlier. But yes, that includes... Yeah, I, I have, I have a, 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 an example on that. There was uh, Norwegians uh, fighting as volunteers in Finland in 1939 and 1940. Uh, and then in uh, the, the, then they came back in 1941 and fought on the Finnish side up to 1945. You know, these fighters, they were prosecuted in Norway after uh, the war. And, and they were jailed. Because Finland got weapons from Germany, so in they in the, in the Norwegian uh, uh, authorities they seem they as traitors, and all that was uh, based on uh, propaganda from 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 Russia of what these wars was about. They, they they didn't they didn't see it from the Finnish side at all. 
No, and that and and that you know, and that that was terrible. I mean, I, I have been to Finland many times, uh, know it well, love the country with with all my heart, and and what, unfortunately, the, the devil's bargain was was foist on uh, Field Marshal Mannerheim and the Finnish people. What what else could they do? Uh, exactly. You know, they they didn't like the Nazis any more than we did, but they nope. didn't want they didn't want the Bolsheviks to to destroy their entire nation. So I, again, and, and, and that, and that's terrible that, that Norway would have fallen for that. And you would think Norway of all nations would have known what, what a desperate bargain that the Finns faced. What a desperate bargain. Yeah. Okay. I stepped on. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Always good to talk Thank to you. you. Very much. So, and with that, we go to Abdullah. Then I can see uh, Carrie and G-Man. Abdullah. Hey, thank you, Axel. Good evening. Good evening, Chuck. Hello, Abdullah. How are you, my friend? All is well, all is well. Thank you, Chuck, for your time. I've, I've been having some Twitter pox, but uh, finally I made it up. Chuck, uh, we might have to refer you to as, uh, as, as Mr. Nostradamus. I recall uh, about a month or so ago, during bullet points, I asked you uh, when I was half asleep, when will the Courage Bridge, uh, when will the, our Ukrainian friends will be revis revisiting the, the Courage Bridge? And, and you told me it, it may be a month to two months. And here we are, Chuck. Uh, where are we going with this? And what other uh, Nostradamus-like predictions can you give us today? And I will have a follow-up afterwards. <laughs> I I wish I wish I had some uh, some ready picks, but uh, I, I would say we're 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 going to see some brittleness in in the Russian line. Uh, I think one of the biggest liabilities that Russian Russia has right now is that the bandwidth of its its command. Uh, they they can't handle a number of crises at once. Uh, that's because they're very top-down, micromanagerial system. Uh, it's also because uh, their their military leaders do not get to a uh, report the facts on the ground directly uh, to national command authority. Uh, National Command Authority, like all military dictatorships, they, they think they know everything. And uh, I, I think that when Russia faces a really big uh, reversal on the battlefield, and I mean reversal, it doesn't necessarily have to be a defeat, that they're going to have a cascading effect, right? And that Ukraine, uh, because its intelligence is so good, its signals intelligence is so good. Uh, its electronic intelligence is so good. Its human intelligence is so good. And and I would also point out, uh, there are a lot of Russians right now, folks, that are picking a side. There are a lot of Russians, both in the military, in the intelligence communities, and just uh, Russian civilians who are in the upper socioeconomic uh, categories right now 
they're giving intelligence right now. They've picked a side. They're operating against Putin. So that means Ukrainian intelligence is going to get better and better. And the, the short prediction is uh, Russian reversals on the battlefield are going to have a cascading effect. And that, uh, you know, Russian problems are going to continue to multiply and that's going to negatively affect Russian performance on the battlefield. That's that's this week's prediction. Thank you so much, Chuck. Hey, Chuck, one more thing. I don't know if you've seen the... I know you're a special forces guy. Have you seen the video of Chechen fighters uh, going after a Russian supply truck within Russia? Did you see that? And is that something that's fairly common within the Chechen battalions that are working with the Ukrainians? I, I, you know, I haven't seen it, Abdullah. Maybe, maybe you could describe it to me. I, I, I bet I haven't seen it. Oh yeah, I think there were like four or five guys, and they ambushed uh, a supply truck, clearly with a Z sign, and they took them. That they took it down, and then, <laughs> and then just casually they, they start walking down the road, and and it was geolocated to be within within Russian territory. So, so I thought maybe you had seen that. No, no, I haven't, but. You know, look, Russia, Russia's got problems, right? And, uh, uh, you know, there there are armed Russian dissidents rolling around. Uh, you know, there, there, there's problems. There, 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 there are problems. Look, this is in the Russian homeland, right? And everyone who has to deal with those security issues, they are diverted away from frontline units in, in Ukraine. So... Uh, I never want to underestimate the enemy ever. I, I, I want to overestimate the enemy, but I see all of these problems converging and, and, you know, I, I see them approaching a critical mass. Uh, so that's, that's the other sort of uh, uh, prediction that these little things that go wrong logistically uh, in terms of supply, in terms of tactics, in terms of leadership, in terms of morale, uh, the more they fester, the worse they get. Uh, training, there's, there's another uh, problem. If Putin mobilizes a million men, he, he, has no, he has no way to turn those million men into soldiers. They they don't they don't have they don't have the facilities to mobilize them, uh, put them through basic training, send them to to uh, a, advanced training. What in the Navy we call A school, where you take a sailor out of boot camp. He's a sailor. Now you have to turn him into a bosun mate, uh, a torpedo man. You got to turn him into a hull technician. What whatever his military occupational specialty is, Russia no longer has that. They don't have the people. They don't have the people to train a, a young soldier to become a tanker or an artilleryman or a or man a missile defense battery because all those people are in Ukraine. Uh, they're, you know, they, they've got a problem with their, with their supply of main battle tanks. If you're sending a T-55 tank into battle, T-55, like, you know, what is, what is that, 70 years ago? That that tank is not fit on the battlefield, and I've heard 
people say, well, you know, it's going to be used as a self-propelled gun. Well, groovy, dude, totally. But it's not carrying an artillery gun. It's carrying an, a 70-year-old, you know, um, rifled cannon for a tank. It's not, it's not an artillery piece. You know, they could still be effective, really, with, with 1955 metallurgy, really, with 1955 optics, you know, no sensors. It, it, it's just, it's crazy. And Chuck, Chuck, is it true then uh, an RPG can, can take it, it can take uh, the T-55 out? Is that true? Or is that just a... <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You know, if, if you get the right shot with an RPG on, a, on, a, on an Armada, you can take it out. And the right shot, generally, if you get right behind a tank and you shoot into the engine compartment, you're going to cause you're going to cause a problem. I mean, even with an Abrams, if you get that stern shot, you're gonna you're gonna have a big problem. And the other, you know, the other, of course, issue is when Russia decided to to remove one person from its tank crews, when they got rid of the loader. And they went to that carousel system where essentially the ammunition is stored in the crew compartment. You know, that was that that was a manufacturing and design problem that became a strategic blunder. Right. They thought that by removing one crewman, they could make the tanks smaller. They cost less. They could put better armor on them. They could spend more money because they'd saved money in the size of the tank. They could spend more money on sensors and ammunition and all of this other stuff. And they, they didn't realize that in terms of defeating tank armor, you know, there was, there's that one solution that has been staring the world in the face literally since the Nazis came up with the Panzerfaust which is if you can have a rocket that's got a shape charge on the, on the end of it, you're going to be able to defeat almost all tank armor. And even when the, the sort of battles of technology came up with reactive, explosive reactive armor, uh, to a lot of extents, if you have a bigger shape charge, you just keep getting the shape charge bigger and bigger, you're going to defeat it. And then, of course, when as guided missile technology came up, hitting the tank with a guided missile. But again, as, as the Russians met that threat, the NATO went to top-down attack, attack missiles, like the Javelin, which, of course, you shoot at the tank, and when it gets within 50 yards, it does a 90-degree turn up and then a 180-degree turn down. And the back of a tank is weak, and so is the top deck. But by making that mistake, moving to a three-person tank crew, they thought they were going to save money. They thought they were going to be able to outproduce the West, flood the zone with what were arguably pretty good tanks, but uh, they've made them all vulnerable. So there are a couple of old school weapons that are still on the battlefield and are doing a good job. The RPGs, which believe it or not, we carried in the SEAL teams. I've fired hundreds of them. It, it's, a good, it's, a good, it's a good weapon. Uh, its own warheads have evolved. There's another old school weapon that's out on the battlefield. Uh, it is an AT4, uh, anti-tank uh, rocket four, uh, American and Swedish design. Uh, it is an unguided weapon, but it's it's extremely potent. 
And uh, although it doesn't have, uh, you know, uh, computerized sites, it's extremely accurate out to 500 meters and even longer. So half of a kilometer and it will hit, it'll destroy almost anything it hits. So Russia's got a problem. And one of the biggest problems is 25% of the world's Javelin missiles are in Eastern Ukraine. So good luck with the offensive lads. They need more than luck, don't they? They need, <laughs> I don't know what they need. It's, uh, you know, the other, the other thing, Axel, it, it, there isn't any, yeah, they do need to leave, but there isn't anything that can help them at this point. They, you, you talked about, no, you know, the young, an entire generation of, of Russian citizens that know nothing else except uh, Big Brother Vlad, right? No, nobody else has been their political leader. But in terms of their military, no other officer cadre has come up. Everyone has come up under the kleptocracy of Vladimir Putin. They don't have any talented officers. There is no General Grant or General Sherman or Robert E. Lee or or George Patton or Montgomery. They don't have any officers to come off the bench and clean this up and get their get their war effort turned around. They don't have it. They've got hacks like Shoigu. They've got had hacks like Garashimov. Who knows where he is? They don't have decent leadership. And they don't have a system where a brilliant young leader could come forward and say, look, boss, I'm just going to tell you the truth. You know, you've hired me as a military officer. You've trained me. I've been to command and staff college. I've been to the war college. I read history. I'm paying attention. I'm going to tell you what's going on here on the battlefield. Those guys get killed. They get fired. They get thrown off balconies. They can't win, bud. There you go, then. All righty. So we have tons of questions up. I can see Kerry. I can see David, G-Man, and Peter. Uh, not uh, Sorry, Derry, Kerry, G-Man, Nother, and Peter. My goodness. Um, if you don't mind, we'll start with Kerry. Hello, Chuck. It's nice to hear you on again. Thank you very much for coming up to speak to us. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you, so you've said you think that the um, offensive is going to carry on for, or rather the war is going to carry on for a couple of years. Um, how do you see it sort of roughly the pace of it playing out? Because I'm imagining that it's not going to cover, carry on at this frenzy or intensity for that couple of years. And then obviously as we move forwards, finally with Sullivan, Enabling the training to go ahead on the F-16s. Uh, decisions still awaiting on the Atacams. It'd uh, be interesting to hear your thoughts on whether you think that will actually be announced or not, or they might just literally rock up, which is maybe why they're using this holding line. Um, how do you see it progressing or petering out? How do you see it playing out? Yeah, in I, I let, let, let's call let's call the rest of the war a 12 round boxing match. I think we're only in the first and second rounds. And I would see uh, Ukraine still preparing uh, the battle spaces. I would see their weapons getting better and better. I would see an important step for them. And uh, G-Man was saying it, and I, I really agree with him. 
the HIMARS, think of it as a very long range, very high powered sniper rifle. And it, it's necessary for Ukraine to take out Im, important uh, facilities in the, and capabilities in the, in the Russian occupied zone. And that, of course, is to, to take out ammunition storage areas, to take out fuel storage areas, and to do what they can to decapitate uh, Russian command. I see that going on for the next couple months, uh, generally depressing uh, Russia's combat capabilities for the forces that are occupying Ukraine. Uh, I want to see more long-range precision strike stuff come in. Uh, I want to see attackums being overtly supplied to the Ukrainians. I want to see things like the naval strike missile come online. I want to see them provided uh, in adequate supply and even in abundance so that uh, Ukrainian commanders don't have to pass up lucrative targets every day, that they don't have to prioritize them so so much, uh, you know, that they can say at the morning target briefing, hit at, you know, we've got 30 targets here, boss. Uh, I want him to be able to say hit them all because right now he can he can only say hit two or three, hit the top three. Uh, I, I see Russia's own combat abilities sort of decreasing. I see their morale problems getting worse. Uh, and then, then and, you know, let's call it a year from now. I, I see at that point the stage would be right. And look, I, I'd be so happy that the come on the radio next week and tell you how wrong I was about this timeline. No, nothing would delight me more. But I still see that there needs to be preparation of the battle space by Ukraine. But then I, then I see the, the actual tide of, of set-piece battles turning. I, 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 then I can see Ukraine making some large territorial advances. And we, we had the success of the Kharkiv offensive, and we had the success in, in northeast Ukraine, where Ukraine took back quite a lot of territory. You know, of course, they, they beat the Russians away from, from Kiev. They beat them out of Sumy, and they beat them out of Kharkiv. Now, that, those significant military reversals, they didn't affect Putin politically. He was able to just shrug those off. But his, his situation has changed now. The, the unexpected has happened to him. Uh, you know, right now he's in this stage where he's trying to uh, fluff out, ignore the Wagner mutiny, uh, you know, shrugging it off. It was okay. We're all friends. He can make whatever he wants to of that. But the Regular MOD, Ministry of Defense Forces, regular Russian army, look, they're left scratching their head. Uh, Prigozhin gets to mutiny against the state, right? He gets to seize a military command center and literally launch an attack on Moscow, and he gets away with it. And we look at us, and you're firing our generals. 
because we're telling you everything that Shoigu was telling you. Okay, so the next big Ukrainian military victory, and it hasn't come yet, and frankly, I, I don't see it materializing in front of me, but that's going to have an effect on Putin because he's not the same guy he was six months ago. He is weaker now than he ever has been. You know, before, and I've always said this, I didn't see a political change on the horizon for Ukraine, um, for, for Russia. I didn't see it. Putin, Putin was in there and there were too many people who, who needed him to be in there and be stable for them to, you know, have their 460-foot yachts in the Mediterranean. But their situations are training, are changing. And the, the fuse is burning on the Russian military. You know, UK Defense Intelligence says 60% of Russia's military capacity has been burned up in Ukraine. That leaves Russia with 40%, 40% of its armed forces capability to meet its global strategic imperatives, which include, no matter what anyone says, it includes not turning their back on China, right? China does not want a strong and prosperous Russia ruling Asia. They want a strong and prosperous uh, China ruling Asia. And more and more, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense for China to try to take Taiwan when they could grab a couple hundred miles of Russia. So, again, I, I, I just see this going on for a while, uh, but, but I see... Uh, Russia's, Russia's military capacity and capability evaporating. And at the same time, I see the Russian forces getting more and more brittle. So I think uh, when Ukraine starts unleashing its heavy punches, again, they're going to resonate throughout the entire effort here in Ukraine. And there could be, and I do expect eventually, major, major military reverses for Russia on the battlefield. All righty. So we have a number of hands up. Chuck has about 13 minutes left. We'll cycle through quickly and get all the questions answered. So people, be quick. We'll sort this. We uh, rack and stack the questions, and then we'll go through them. Chris, I've got one question Nora. for before anyone else, though. Uh, 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 yes, I know. Question. Well, it's not me. I, I've, okay. I've been Bring handling it. DMs. So the question was, uh, I think it's a quite a good question, is I, I, I've not seen anything, but has there been much noise about the fact that this was on the Russian side of the border? Uh, you mean the Kerch Bridge strike? Yeah. yeah actually, just... it is not. Uh, yeah, but that's is the point, it not? David. It is not on the Russian side of the border because Tuzla, the island, is and the surroundings of the island are actually... Ukrainian. Oh, yeah, no, so I knew Tuzla. So, so how does, oh, does that mean in actual fact that until uh, they hit the Russian land, that it's all Ukraine until that point? Then? Well, it's it, technically it is um, about half the distance from Tuzla Spit Island uh, to the Russian uh, territory proper. That's where it should be. And this was directly at the approach to Tuzla. Okay, well then, then that that question doesn't come into it. So you can ignore me, Axel. Uh, you, you typically do. I would, I would, I would <laughs> never, I would never publicly give evidence to me having ignored you because that would simply betray, be betraying our friendship. 
So, and with that being said, let's ignore him further. <laughs> oh, 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 gosh. David, I'm let's, with you. Okay. He does the same thing to me. <laughs> yeah, and then I wake up stabbed in the back during the night because somebody slid. Yeah, but there you go. Um, we have five questions, so we'll do this very quickly. Chris, Nother, G-Man, Peter, Meta, ask your questions and we'll rack and stack them. Chuck answers them in staccato. Chris, first. Oh, okay, uh, thanks, Chuck, and th thanks for spending all this time with us. Uh, we're great, uh, big fan here again, uh, second-time caller. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask uh, if you by any chance knew if what's coming with the Abrams is the M1028 canister uh, shell that goes into the 120 millimeter main gun because uh, I believe it's effective at the 700 meters. But I was just thinking, you know, if, if we're expecting these waves of Russian soldiers, you know, coming charging across, you know, no man's land like they did in Bakhmut, then that could potentially come in and, you know, be very effective in that case. Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I think so. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I always watch when the, when the, United States government uh, defense aid packages refer to uh, and ammunition. And those are exactly the kind of rounds I think that are going in there. And Axel, I'm sorry, stepping on you there. No, it was good. I was just about to wreck and stack the questions, but I liked it this way as well. So now that we continue in this uh, vein, quick, dirty. Yeah, so Chuck, uh, you were saying that uh, US Soviet era tanks uh, were may have been a strategic disaster. But presumably those tanks were designed on the basis of the Soviet assumption that they could mobilize people uh, to a spectacular level, which Russia clearly cannot. So maybe maybe it was a mistake for the, the Soviet Union to do that, uh, you know, three-person tank, but could be justified on the basis that they can mobilize people on a spectacular scale. But if you've got current Russian generals, assuming they can follow Russian doctrine and don't have the ability to mobilize people that scale, maybe they are never going to be able to see anything like the battlefield effects they expect from their predictions, because essentially the model is fundamentally broken in more than one way. Uh, as I said, before my time, but maybe you can comment. Oh, yeah. I, I can remember this. I, I can remember w when I operated in Europe, the, the absolute assumption was that, that we were going to be absolutely overrun and possibly pushed back into the English Channel. And so many of the missions that we planned for were deep penetration against Russian command and control networks that we assumed were just going to flood the zone. Um. And, and those the, the vulnerabilities that we see in the in in Russian armor right now, uh, they they were largely unknown. Um, you know, when when I was trained th to fight tanks, I mean, it was battered into my head that you're only going to get one shot, and you you know, if you want to take this Russian tank out, you've got to hit it from behind, right? Because that's that that's the weakest spot. No, you know, we, we didn't have the example of the, of the Syrian civil war. Uh, we didn't, you know, we, we had uh, examples of some of the Arab-Israeli wars and, and saw the, you know, uh, saw the effect of, of it, it Israeli attacks on 
on some of the latest Soviet equipment, but it never really registered. It Well, at least it didn't get down into my military education just exactly how vulnerable uh, Russian tanks were, you know. And look, they were at least at parity with most American tanks until the, you know, until the Abrams got its feet under it and had its subsequent uh, developments. And then it just ran away from, uh, you know, its Russian competition. But, you know, all, all that being said, look, I, you know, I'm, I wasn't an armor officer, right? I was a, you know, I'm a special operations guy. I had to be conversant in a lot of things, but, you know, I'm no, I'm no armor expert. But I think you've made a, you've made, you know, you've, you've made a re really good point. But I, I don't think we knew that, that Russian tanks could be actually taken out like this. I do know that uh, what we were dealing with in the last stages of the Cold War was we expected massive Russian superiority, that they would outnumber us in, in men and that they would outnumber us in artillery, frontal aviation, uh, you know, everything. And I, I hate to go back to those, those awful days of the Cold War, but that was why the United States advertised that it would be the first to use nuclear weapons because we couldn't afford to keep two million troops in, in Europe. We, we couldn't afford to do it. So we said to the Soviets back in those awful days, if you invade Germany, you know, if, if you invade Austria, if, if you invade Switzerland, we're going to nuke you. And, and that was how the balance of power was maintained, unfortunately. Okay, G-Man, quick. So um, the threats against undersea, undersea cables, um, the Russians are more likely to do something because the West has not been using deterrence in the last 10 years properly, maybe 20 years. Discuss. <laughs> you know, we talked about that glorious time when, uh, you know, when the Soviet Union kind of came apart and a lot of people naively, and I think Americans are especially susceptible to this sort of wishful thinking, is that, well, now everything's going to be okay. You know, uh, there's, there's no need for this new Russia, this post-Soviet Russia, to to see Europe as an adversary. And and frankly, no matter what Putin thinks, it wasn't. You know, there there was an opportunity there when uh, when Merkel said, "Look, build this pipeline. We'll we'll buy your gas." There was an opportunity for Russia to embrace the embrace Europe and participate, uh, you know, economically, even if it didn't want to participate uh, politically. But we've seen time and a time, you know, time and time again, from Yeltsin onward, Russia invades Chechnya, Russia, Russia invades Georgia, <laughs> Russia invades Ukraine. You know, I, I hate to say this because this, this rhetoric just rings, but look, they are an aggressive imperialistic power. They consider and Merkel, their... And Ms. Merkel did what? She grew up because her father, a pastor, went from Western Germany, from freedom 
into a fiefdom of evil in the Soviet-occupied zone. She grew up there, studied physics, included in this was Marxist-Leninist education. It's not quite clear how she survived her studies so well. It's not quite clear what she did. And then later on, she became active in the um, controlled opposition of the CDU in uh, the Soviet-occupied state. And uh, then she became, yeah, I don't know, a Trojan horse in the Conservative Party. And it, uh, I, I think it you're right. I think I, I think you're right. We know we know what a mistake that was. But you know what? Instead of a mistake, let's call it this. You know this. Let's call it this glorious missed opportunity for Russia, right? And and I, you know, again, happy to remind everybody when I'm wrong. Another reason why I didn't think Russia would invade Ukraine openly was this. The Soviet Union came apart because it could not, it could not compete militarily slash economically against the West. It didn't work. That's when the, the total apparatus of the state and all of the Soviet economy was pointed towards military development remaining on parity and dominating the West. And their whole system fell apart because they couldn't do it. Why on earth does Putin think he can do it again? And what does he think now? That he, he goes to invade low-hanging fruit, you know, the, this, this, you know, confused state that Ukraine was in as it was trying to find its way through the world after Maidan Square, he thought he could grab it and knock it off. And and now it, he, he's lost 60% of his armed forces. He hasn't been able to do this. And he has reignited this economic military competition with the West, which the Soviet Union already lost. Why did he think he could do that? Because we and were I don't... so weak and we, our signaling was there. Chuck, we discussed it. The signaling was so clear. And he thought that after Merkel, now that the communists, sorry, the communists, sorry, the, the, the Greens and the Social Democrats, <laughs> the communists finally came into um, power and would change German economy forever by shutting down the nuclear power plants. This was the perfect opportunity because he had the communists, sorry, the Social Democrat, Olaf Scholz in charge, who would definitely do his bidding because in the 1980s, Olaf Scholz already traveled nine times into the Soviet occupied zone and was compromising himself to uh, doing the bidding of Stalin and uh, his successors by offering to work against, work against the then existing German government and cause a general strike as part of the youth organization of the Social Democratic Party. And for our American audience, the youth organization of the Social Democratic Party in Germany is called Jung Sozialisten, Young Socialists, which is what you would translate into Young Communists, by the way. Just, you know, it's a differentiation in terms. Not everybody in the US learns it, but if you go to one of the two universities in England, you get that. And on the continent, there's umpteen universities for this. It's totally clear. Miss Merkel was an appeasement bug. She infested the continent we were unwilling to fight, unwilling to sacrifice. And the subsequent politicians are equally bad. And this spirit of fight 
the will to fight is not there yet because not everybody is as battle-hungry as the northerners. There's a separation between northern Germany and the south. There's a separation between the Scandies and the south. There's a separation between the peaceful English people and the people they beat into pulp at Argencourt, the French. We need to be willing to fight. I will absolutely agree with you. As corny as it sounds, folks, but look, freedom isn't free. There is, yeah, that's something people should learn in kindergarten, right? There is always a bully who come up, will come up to you and says, give me your lunch money. And th the world is no different. You, you have to, you have to deter that aggression. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Look, it, 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 you know, Ronald Reagan called it the evil empire. Well, it, it it turns out that he was right. It turns out that he was even he was even more right than any of us could possibly imagine. And this war is existential on the part of of Ukraine. Look, they they have to win this war. Or there isn't going to be a Ukraine. And and again, I mean, I say this: they're not asking for the U.S. Marine Corps. They're not asking for the parachute regiment. They are not asking for the 101st Airborne. All they're asking for is the tools to do the job. They'll do the dying. All we have to do is, is give them the tools to get these burglars, these intruders, these rapists out of their homes. And uh, that's what we need to do. And Axel, I want to thank you so much, so much for having me on. And uh, the breaking news, uh, I, I just love working with you, David. Love to you, my brother. And... Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you, everybody, for all the great questions. Uh, the, be the best listeners in the whole world, the best, the best informed, the, the best questions. And, uh, you know, Slava Ukraine. Uh, Harem Slava, and thank you very much for your very kind words, Chuck. Slava Nazi. Yeah, all right. Slava. I love you guys. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And uh, and with that, I will be departing. But many, many thanks. And thank you, everybody. I'll see you soon. <laughs> Kurt Bridge on fire. Your defense is terrified. Kurt Bridge on fire. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, man. Good night, you guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.